welcome to Happy Times and Places, a positively inclined Doctor Who episode commentary podcast with me, Toby Haydoke. This one we're doing slightly differently. The story you know because you've read the blurb. It's Terror of the Autons, and it has been chosen by my special guest, Richard Marson. Back in the day, he was a writer and contributor to Doctor Who magazine. He's written books about Doctor Who, and he's also even been the editor of Blue Peter. He's Doctor Who royalty, actually, if you're a fan of my age, and he thought it would be more interesting if we chatted about his choice after we'd both watched the story. So I will watch the story without knowing what his favourite thing is, and then we'll dip forward into the future and he'll tell me what his pick for each episode is. So we'll start rather uncontroversially at the beginning with episode one. So get yourself settled in and we'll hear from Richard Marson, our special guest, at the end of the episode. Well, hello. I'm usually referred to as Toby Haydoke. Actually, I'm I'm not. I'm really rarely referred to with the correct pronunciation. But that is a clue as to the episode I'm about to ask you to press play on. It is Terror of the Autons, part one, episode one. Uh, so however you have it lined up, I hope I've bought you enough time to press play in three, two, one. Uh, well, welcome. Um, confession up front. Uh, this one might be a bit of a challenge for me. It's a story I've never been a massive fan of. Partially, I think it was the first Pertwee I got on, on bootleg video, and I was slightly disappointed to discover it was in black and white, for starters. I'd known it had only existed in black and white apart from a, an off-air colour, I think, but I somehow assumed that the copy I would be getting would be colour and it wasn't it was it was a very good quality black and white but it was black and white nonetheless so I haven't seen it in colour that much obviously I have when I I got the the DVD but it's it's not one I break out very often um the qualities the qualities are okay actually I was I, I, I sometimes expect these recolored ones to be not so great I think it's harder with something like the demons or out of phase film um because we've got episode four and we can see the marked change in in the quality between the the recolored and the actual color but this oh it's a bit grainy isn't it but this is film anyway um this is john bascom as rossini who was in poldark the olden days one uh but it's it it's a story that i think i envisage to be different from what we get i always envisage the poet to be sort of lots of explosions lots of soldiers Fewer circuses. There's quite a lot of time spent in the circus here. Um, fewer, you know, factory offices. And I, and I, uh, but what, uh, what an entrance. And he does not disappoint. He, I'd always read about the master. This is the first time I'd ever seen him, actually. Yeah. Uh, and I'd sort of got an idea of what he'd be like because I'd seen Anthony Ainley as a kid. But he is pitch perfect and he looks fantastic. You can see why Barry Letts didn't consider anybody else for the part. Those hooded dark eyes, 
the way that that is shot, the precise movements, the fact that he can click his fingers through leather gloves. <laughs> I, wonder, <laughs> I wonder if that was on uh, Roger Delgado's CV. And the economy of this, uh, I mean, that's not even a set. That's uh, that's Dave Carter, perennial uh, walk-on. Uh, he'd been Silurian in the size. He's done loads, Dave Carter. Never found him. Hard. He's called Dave Carter. If you live next door to a bloke called Dave who says, I was in Doc 2 loads, you know, please let me know. Uh, but the, the economy of that, you know, bit of CSO, that's what that set was, a, a, a walk-on to go, oi, or whatever. Uh, smash a thing, grab the grab the sphere. So great, the story's, the story's uh, underway. I was trying to set up at the beginning, I'm, I'm, I know this is about accentuating the positive, but uh, I'm just trying to explain why it will be uphill for me this i still intend to do it uh and i still love doctor who um but i'm coming from a, a point where this was a this was not the story i wanted it to be i'd got the target book with the the amazing you know octop one-eyed octopus crab crab thing on the front i'd, I'd read about the house of lords complaining and the papers and the bbc upper echelon saying it was too scary and it was as I say, it was quite sort of garish and jolly and not what I expected. However, I'm not a I'm 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 not a potential I I think when I was younger I wanted to be grizzled and cynical and I liked my Doctor Who. I can understand why this is a real it is a real sort of culture shift from season seven, which was how I wanted my Doctor Who and I, I but I can but I I can understand why the production team went away from that. Terence Dix always said that season seven, you know, was gritty and brilliant and looked good, but it wasn't Doctor Who. It was more like Quatermass, and I like Quatermass. Whereas this is more like Doctor Who, and I, it's hard to disagree, actually, although I love season seven. I could have done with another five years of season seven. Um, she's great, isn't she, Katie Manning? Uh, and what we forget, I think, because she is so Joe Grant, is that in real life... She, I know Katie is manic and scatty and eccentric, but she's not Joe Grant. She doesn't even sound like Joe Grant. Um, you know, she puts on her voices and she... Uh, this is a characterization, you know, very much so. Um, maybe when we do The Curse of Peladon, I will talk about the... The, uh, the, uh, the Doctor and the Monsters repeat that led to me writing TH4KM on my school exercise book because she's very easy to fall in love with. <laughs> That's a nice shot through the through the thing. Oh, we've had that we've had it. I'm so sorry. I talked through one of the great bizarre lines of Doctor Who, which is when he calls her a ham-fisted bun vendor. <laughs> For years I was going, what's a bun vendor? What's a what's a bun what's a bun vendor? Is it some sort of I've heard the third doctor say things like jack jackanapes and, and and that sort of thing. So I thought bun vendor was perhaps some sort of ancient ancient insult. You 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 remember but with that I knew it wouldn't be rude. I knew it wasn't bum or or, or you know in the pejorative bender, which has been used as a horrible pejorative in the past. I I didn't know that was a special effect, the double um until really recently, uh, somebody pointed it out to me that the double radar is a is a is an effect shot. Very subtle, very effective, uh, and uh, this location is actually gorgeous. Um, uh, and these these stairs and gantries give us 
you know, a feeling of height. It gives us, gives us, you know, gets us outside in the location. That's actually gorgeous. I love that. See, I wouldn't have noticed stuff like that as a kid watching in black and white, how much that took us away from, you know, you know, people talking in offices, which this is, but it's slightly uh, different. Uh, and these two are both Barry Letts regulars. Christopher Burgess has been in Enemy of the World uh, and is in Planet of the Spiders. Uh, and Andrew Staines was actually Barry Letts' nephew, the bald guy with the beard, uh, who was also an Enemy of the World at the last minute, taking over from... Should I do this fact now or when I do Enemy of the World? I'll do it when I do Enemy of the World. Uh, and And I'm not gonna do this very often and i don't actually have much from doctor who i don't have a prop from doctor who uh I've, I, I don't have a full script from oh i've got no i have got this k patrick scripts from the savages now um uh but i don't i don't have i don't have anything that's been on screen in doctor who uh but andrew staines who's about to get killed <laughs> uh I had the pleasure of interviewing, and I interviewed him with, when he was with Terence Lodge, who is who is also because that both of these guys uh, are part of Lupton's gang in Planet of the Spiders, as is the actor Terence Lodge. And Terence introduced me to Andrew and said, "Oh, you're talking to a very fine draftsman, you know." And Andrew said, "Oh yes, I I sketched Roger Delgado uh, learning his lines, and later Andrew actually sent sent me that." Uh, so for those of you listening to the podcast, um, maybe I'll put this in the show notes or something. Uh, I'm showing the, the videocast people. This is available as videocast. Uh, the, the, the sketch, and it says, An actor prepares, this is in Andrew's handwriting, the late Roger Delgado studies his words for Terror of the Autons in the BBC rehearsal rooms, North Acton, Sept, October 1970. This was the first Doctor Who story in which he played the master, signed Andrew Staines. And Andrew actually gave that to me. Andrew is, is no longer with us, so I'm very fortunate to have that and i got it framed up and it's it's my i think it's my most treasured doctor who thing just because it's just it's a one-off and it's a it's a little i know it's not a photograph but it's a little taste of history and it was done you know when this was being made uh and i think that's rather special um and andrew was a very nice man uh who uh, uh, uh he pronounced it nepotism he said he, but he said he quite often filled in for because he's in uh, Carnival of Monsters as well as the captain of the ship. He quite often filled in at the last minute if Barry was short of somebody or if somebody dropped out. Um, uh, and uh, his yeah, his mother, Pauline Letts, uh, Barry Letts' sister, was an actress. But I really like Christopher Burgess, uh, this actor, uh, who's got white hair in Enemy of the World. Um, he's sort of aged up a bit, which he didn't really do now. But, um, but uh, he's got a lovely sort of broken quality about him. His voice almost... It feels like it's about to crack, um, and and this is the sort of the brigadier and the doctor here, sort of jousting, but very good naturedly. Uh, doctor Boo, <laughs> rather stroppy. He's a bit of a meanie, but that, I mean it's deliberate. Um, but it's 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 rebranding as you like, if you like the series, with this. You know, someone said slightly cosier feel uh but that's you know that's partly dictated by the rapport of the actors nicholas courtney is obviously just lovely as the brigadier and uh 
but he knows how to he knows how to play the doctor which is nice and yes it is a bit more it is a bit less sort of Euston filmsy gritty stuff but um doctor who is a is a show that is designed to be fun for kids and uh uh, and and as we know, you know, there are various elements of this that were deemed unsuitable for kids. So uh, perhaps a spoonful of day glow helps the strangulations go down. Ooh, that was torturous. I'm so sorry. Um, and yeah, and, and because we get and we get uh, Yates and Ventilator and we've got the master and that's it. That's the the unit family. Um, and of course, you get this beautiful um high shot here for because you've got a big tower in your radar place but yes i and interesting quite a muted introduction for for yates seeing as he's going to go on to be uh a regular but i actually i quite like it sometimes when doctor isn't aware of its own sort of legacy and go this is a big moment i know captain yates but he's he's a regular he's a companion um or is he i don't know yeah he is. He's a regular. Frank Mills, still about 93. Lives not far from here, I think. I remember be, uh, he's one of those actors that you look at and think, I know him from somewhere. He's been in everything, but actually had had a sort of better later career. I, th I think he's he's an extra in Quatermass and the Pit, uh, but but was Betty Turpin's husband in Coronation Street. And I know he auditioned for the Foresight Saga, the remake, on the day that I did, because they were seeing the Manchester actors. And, I th and, and Jeff Hinsliff was up for the same part as Frank Mills, I think. Um, that not the part I was up for. I I got it. I don't think either of them, them did. But they were seeing all the Manchester actors in one day because that's what happens. They do three weeks of auditions in London, then go let's chuck it, throw a bone to the Manchester people. We can spare them twelve hours. Uh, I adore David Garth, Sit Solicitor Grey from the Highlanders, returning to Doctor Who as the bowler hatted Time Lord. This is Robert Holmes already going berobed invincible godlike people nah, nuts to that i'll make him a slightly fruity patronizing city gent david garth is perfectly cast and plays the part to a t i can understand why you know fans at the time maybe who'd seen the time lords once you know they were big news the, the, the Doctor is from the Time Lords and they're these amazing, scary, godlike people in robes with starry eyes who could create force fields. And, and you know, <laughs> a year and a bit later, uh, no, they're pompous civil servants. But I like what Robert Holmes does with Doctor Who. Uh, he, he makes it slightly more than science fiction. Um, and, and austere and berobed can only take you a certain way and i think what what sums up doctor who is that actually where a lot of programs would make people austere and berobed doctor who makes them bowler hatted <laughs> uh, and that is sort of comforting yet also satirical yet also uh, a, 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 a cheeky mickey take uh much more fun for the actor uh good umbrella acting there david garth um and I think that's what makes it Doctor Who. Um, so I, uh, whilst I'm sure if I'd been a kid of seven or eight in 1969 when the War Games was on and I watched this, I would be furious. We Doctor Who fans do furious, especially when the programme with the flexible format flexes its format. Uh, but I love this now. Um... Uh, and, and I, th I think this is a 
terrific scene and the fact that the and Pertwee is so good at being pissed off oh good wind as well I have to say because this is a set obviously uh uh oh good luck <laughs> I think that's terrific uh <laughs> and that you know that and that's a sort of that's a parallel of 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 the Pertwee Doctor bumping heads with civil servants on Earth, which he will do for the rest of his career, pretty much. In fact, we get one in episode three here. Um, uh, so, so, so anyway, that's a neat foreshadowing of uh, of what he's going to have to do. Um, and we're getting the Doctor to use his uh, his skills fairly early on, which is nice. Um, He's he's very he's a natural Pertwee. I think it. I think I think uh, he he fits the part like a glove and and does all this stuff like it's second nature. Which uh, for, for somebody who was unsure of himself, I know there was there, there was a feeling he was slightly intimidated by Roger Delgado, wasn't he? Because uh, Delgado had much more experience as a, as a television actor and as a straight actor. Um, Pertwee hadn't really done an awful lot of electronic studio drama acting before he was Doctor Who, if any. Um, and, I, and I think, you know, was, was not as confident as he might have appeared. Uh, so it's to his credit that he is a Doctor of extreme confidence. Uh, who looks, who just looks brilliant. <laughs> um, but yeah, Frank, Frank, Frank Mills, here he is. Uh, I, I remember seeing him turn up in sort of casualty and, and things sort of much after I'd even sort of been collecting this. I was surprised he was sort of still about and still doing stuff. But he, he started acting, I think, quite late. But, yep, still going at 93, uh, somewhere around here. Um, his his part in Coronation Street was, was slightly odd because he was sort of introduced to marry Betty Turpin, but then he was sort of more of a sort of off-screen. And this shot of Andrew Staines took ages uh, and is really well done and it's a great way of establishing the master... It's good, it is. Uh, uh, and the shadow there is good because uh, it wouldn't look so realistic without the shadow. I think the shadow was done with a cardboard cutout. But that set took, that shot took a couple of hours. That CXO in its infancy. But I think it's terrific. Much better than a doll uh, that they used subsequently. Um, but obviously it doesn't take as long. Uh, uh, and I think that's a great, a great Doctor Who moment. So we're doing all right so far, aren't we, for a story that I was be slightly underwhelmed by it's also slightly different this because i'm gonna have to choose my things um as we go through but i'm then not gonna know what the person that sent me this story richard marson uh has done until tomorrow in my time uh because uh we, we're gonna do it on zoom so i'm gonna write down what i choose for each episode as my favorite thing so that i don't cheat and then uh we'll see what whether richard and i have come up with the same things i'm not used to this in color at all i watched this in black and white so many times i think i've probably seen it in color once maybe twice that's not very often for me for a doctor who story i didn't say i passed very nice <laughs> uh, um i do like the fact that the doctor's got a space apron <laughs> Silver was a good shorthand for space, wasn't it? Uh, I think I, I've, I'm sure there are even some silver cushions on Gallifrey at some point. How do we make this ordinary thing look like it is from space or the future? Silver, we don't have that these days. 
but yeah, the, 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 this, this, I think I expected Pertwee Doctor Who to look much more like a movie, uh, just because of the way it was written up. I think I expected it to be darker. All of these inventive deaths in this are actually quite comic strippy, and I don't mean that as a, as a pejorative, but I think my taste, as I say, my taste as a youngster was always for Doctor Who to be as grown up as possible, which is, which is interesting because as I get older, and I have a couple of kids now who are in you know teens, well now one one in, one is twenty, and I, I was desperate for them to retain their childhoods for as long as possible, because actually being as kid, and I, and I struggled in my childhood a, a, a lot, I, for for various reasons I'm not going to bore you with, but but I. But also there was all that that unfettered joy and innocence and all of those things that we do lose and that get eroded over time. And I was desperate for my kids sometimes when they wanted to be all grown up to, to, to sort of enjoy being a kid for as long as possible, because in many ways it doesn't get better than that. And I think I spent a lot of my childhood wait because I've got older brothers and sisters waiting for for that time when life got sorted, when you got grown up and you knew everything and you didn't have to worry about anything. And of course that's none of that's true uh so actually i connect a lot more with doctor who that's a bit more kid friendly now i i think because it it reminds me that of 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 those things that you i think sometimes as a kid you don't realize are, are, are the best days of your life in many ways uh i always like doctor who when it goes on location just little things like those rows of pipes and the the, the you know the 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 size of the set as it were because we're outside uh benefits from being being on location um and this is great joe grant oh hello <laughs> and he's got such a good face uh and i remember reading an interview with katie manning where she said she had to be hypnotized by the master and when he was off camera he pulled lots of faces at her to to make her giggle um although it, it 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 must be yeah it must be this bit because it was too far away from her before because she can't see a blooming thing because <laughs> uh, katie banning is as blind as a bat uh and michael wisher who i mates with barry letts michael wisher the first davros but he'd been in uh ambassadors of death two stories ago with a beard so i suppose Shave your beard off, you can have another part. Two stories later. Those were the days. Uh, and Benton. So now we have the the five regulars. Uh, the unit family is in place. Harry Taub. Um, both of his Doctor Who appearances, because he was a very recognisable actor, uh, Harry Taub. Uh, and also an Irishman uh, fanzine, what I read many years ago, that said he'd got a terrible Irish accent. <laughs> um, uh, and I was very hearted when Harry Tower passed away. I think The Independent or The Guardian called him one of the finest character actors of his generation, something like that. And it was nice to see him get that sort of recognition because very good, very good uh, character actor, great career on stage and on screen. And yet his Doctor Whos are both sort of, let's get the the famous guy in and then kill him off surprisingly because he's in episode one of the seeds of death uh, and he gets a you know guest billing in the radio times and he's dead within about 10 minutes uh 
Uh, and I mean, at least he makes it to episode two here. And he's in the uh, he's in the tribute to Roger Delgado as well on the uh, is it the Frontier in Space DVD, um, and 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 wrote a lovely letter I know to to the guys involved in the making of the DVD, just saying thanks for the for the DVD and stuff like that. So proper gent. And I oh this is the bit where he does the phone call and wraps his hat and and you've got his tapping finger. I really like this touch. I, I'm, uh, Barry Letts isn't the most dynamic of directors, I don't think. One of I, but I love that that moment. I think that's. Uh, it's just a way of just making it a bit more interesting. Uh, uh, now, yes, we needed to see an Auton because it is called Terror of the Autons. Uh, and we uh, I think one of the things I felt as a kid was that uh, I didn't see enough of them. They do like their CSO backdrops, don't they? Uh, which is, you know, they're, they're learning how to... They, you know, they're breaking in the technology um, and, uh, you know, being 100 percent convincing wasn't necessarily the order of the day i think it was a tacit acknowledgement that you were suggesting something rather than entirely pulling it off you know you, you can you can always see the fringing on on the cso um but the uh the cso sort of blow up backdrop walls didn't didn't last that long um stopper that's a bomb i think had to be added a bit later because it's not it's not entirely clear what the smoking box is um oh but there we go there we go. Um, I'm perfectly happy with that. Um, I'm I'm pleased to. I remember being astonished and rather chuffed that Delgado is so high up on the on the credits. I mean, he really is a regular. He's not, you know, not just the good guys, then the bad guys. Um, I was quite surprised to see Casey Manning so low down. She 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 goes further up as the as the era progresses and, and the, the brigadier and Andy Yates and Benton drop right to the bottom. Um, uh, I mean, right to the bottom, bottom. Um, uh, anyway, you don't care about that. It's only me who gives a monkeys about credit order. I've done a whole podcast on that. Uh, anyway, I've got to choose my favourite thing because I'm about to leap at no director credit on this is because it's Barry Letts is the producer um, and the director. So, um, that's the end of episode one. I'm going to pause it. Uh, ready to watch episode two, which I am going to do shortly. It'll be another episode for you. However, normally now I would play what my special guest has chosen as their favourite thing. But instead, what I'm going to do is I'm going to nominate mine. I'm going to write it on this piece of paper so I cannot cheat. And then when I speak to them... Uh, for me tomorrow which but i'll play for you imminently uh they'll tell me oh they'll tell me what their favorite thing is and i'll we'll see if what i've written down matches with them and if it does i win and if it doesn't i lose and the difference between winning and losing is not entirely clear uh, but <laughs> let's add some drama to it I am going to choose, I think it's pretty, that, uh, um, with honourable mention to that brilliant C CSO shot of Googe, uh, which obviously has a slight personal connection uh, for me, uh, I think because it sums up to me so much of what Doc 2 is about, because I, it probably would have annoyed me if I'd been a fan at the day, and yet I have to accept that I think it's really great now. And it never did annoy me, but that's because I'm, I'm younger. But you know, I'm, I'm sure there are similar things that have happened that that 
that sort of upended my view of what Doctor Who was because of the way the show, show evolves that I, I've been furious about. Um, so I don't distance myself from anybody that was annoyed with it because I, I you know, I'm, I'm cut from the same cloth. However, I love it. I think it's very Robert Holmes. I think it's very Doctor Who. And that is the bowler-hatted Time Lord. Uh, not just the performance from David Garth, which I think is very good, because I have to be careful not to just go, I like that actor and that performance, because they're very much the things that I fixate upon. Uh, it's it's the whole concept uh, of what he's, he's done with the Time Lord there, the, 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 the whole interaction with the Doctor, as well as the performance. So the bowler-hatted Time Lord is my favourite thing for episode one. Uh, I'm now going to cut to the future, where I will talk to Richard Marson and see what he says. Well, I had a brainwave um, in that I thought I'd contact for this, not just people that I sit in the pub with and wax lyrical about Doctor Who too, but the very people that created the monster you see before you now, the people that wrote the history that I gorged on as a child. So I'm delighted. I have met this gentleman before uh, and had a very nice time uh, when I've done so, but uh, uh, we don't talk that often, although always very helpful when it comes to sharing resources or making contacts, which uh, is, a, is a really important part of, of the stuff that we do and is, I think, sometimes underreported. So I'm very grateful to Richard Marson for a number of reasons. Hello, Richard. How are you? Hello, Toby. I'm really good, thank you. In these strange times, I have not many complaints. So there you go. And and tell me why I would just uh, just for the viewer because some of them some, we've got some very young ones I think I don't know I haven't launched the podcast yet but just so that it comes from your mouth um, your your sort of history with Doctor Who. So many 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 years ago when I was only a teenager I had the great good fortune to start writing for. Doctor Who magazine, Doctor Who Monthly, as it was then. So in the, uh, it had a crum crummy office in Queensway and was very much a labour of love for the people who did it. And, and incredibly, I kind of blagged my way in. And for four years, while I was also in full-time education, I was writing articles, doing interviews. And I think what, what often gets forgotten is that that was the pre-internet era. So in terms of finding out stuff, and doing any kind of research. It was much, much harder work. Um, but the, the great advantage we did have was that, of course, most of those people from the classic era of Doctor Who were still alive. And they might be very surprised that you wanted to talk to them, but they were still working. They were still, in some cases, in their prime. So that was an enormous privilege, you know, and I look back now and I think, oh, I wish I'd done more. I wish I'd, you know, kind of tracked even more people down but it was it was an incredible time and from there you know I then worked in television and never lost my love of Doctor Who but while I was on Blue Peter I was running Blue Peter for a number of years at the point where Doctor Who came back spectacularly and very successfully and it was great to be part of doing the promotion so we did the famous um, designer monster competition whatever you think of love and monsters um, I love that love and is monsters. also a same here. And it's a tribute to the kind of um, sibling relationship between Doctor Who and Blue Peter, uh, which was which was lovely to be able to continue to foster that and continue to develop that. And I've also written a couple of Doctor Who related books. One was the biography of John Nathan Turner, um, which um, caused a bit of a hoo-ha a few <laughs> years ago. Happily, uh, I think perspective has now 
uh, allowed to be in the in the building along with uh, hoo-ha and then I did a biography of Verity Lambert which was uh, really you know a kind of fascinating because I knew much less about Verity and of course she had an incredible uh, varied career so that really was um, a, a fascinating process so those are my credentials and that's why I'm here but of course I, I, want you I was to just going to say oh. like you Toby I, like you Toby I was I was that kind of I remember listening to your uh, initial show when it was on Radio 4 and just kind of nodding like a nodding dog I think I was in the car going somewhere and just thinking there was so much kind of empathy for the things you were describing and the thing that you know when you're first a Doctor Who fan again in the pre-internet era we were slightly other in that most of our families and friends didn't really get in any way why we loved this program um, and so you had to seek out the the people who got where you were coming from and understood why it had somehow managed to root itself in your heart. So there you are. Oh, well, bless you. Well, uh, and I, I, I do, I would like you to write a, uh, a history of Doctor Who actually called uh, Perspective and Hoo-Ha, because I think, <laughs> <laughs> I think that's pretty much Doctor Who, Doctor Who fandom in a nutshell, isn't it? <laughs> Perspective and Hoo-Ha. Um, well, uh, well, look, um, we, you have chosen a story I've chosen one thing from each episode and a bonus thing that I like about it. And I'm going to see if we tally. But uh, uh, the, 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 the viewer does not yet know which story you've chosen. So without going into specifics, uh, t tell us the story that you've chosen and a sort of vague reason why. OK, I've gone for Terror of the Autons, the first story of the 1971 season of Doctor Who. And the reason for that is it's really my first memory of the programme. And, and the reason it took root in my memory I think was it terrified me so uh, completely I mean I couldn't tear myself away but equally I was really really genuinely freaked out by it and and those memories which were very visceral stayed with me you know ever afterwards and it was also the beginning of my kind of personal dream team of Doctor Who, John Pertwee, Katie Manning and the kind of unit guys so for me it was the beginning of a lot of things. Lovely. Well, episode one. Now, listen, I have a confession to make. This was a tricky one for me because it was the first Pertwee I sort of collected on bootleg. And having had my imagination fired up by the Target books and the movies they created in our heads <laughs> uh, and the fact that it was in black and white, it was a massive disappointment to me. Uh, and it took me ages to recover from that. Uh, so this has been a very useful process. Uh, to, 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 to sort of go into it with, with fresh eyes. And I did thoroughly enjoy it, uh, I'm pleased to say. But I, I had to get that confession out of the way. And I've chosen my thing for episode one, but I, I, I'll be interested. And I've written it down so that I can't cheat. Um, but So what's your, what's your choice for episode one, Richard? Well, I mean, it sounds kind of obvious, but for me, it's the first meeting of Katie Manning's Joe Grant with the Doctor when she comes in and ruins his experiment by uh, using the fire extinguisher. There's, I mean, I think, you know, partly it's because of the charm of it, you know, that I think it's very tough for a young actor to join any series. And obviously Katie Manning was, I guess, in her early 20s. And, you know, to make such impact straight away, to be someone who... Um, has so much immediate uh, effect on the viewer. Uh, I think that's that's no mean feat. She doesn't always get the credit for it. And, um, you know, we, John Pertwee is clearly an established uh, scene stealer and very domineering leading man. So she needed to be able to quickly carve out her own 
niche and her own place in the proceedings, which she does with so much charm right from the off. And so that's why I thought for me, that was the moment. Uh, that's very, yeah, I think that's a good choice. And I think Katie, and I did mention it in my, my commentary, I think we sometimes forget as well that Katie is acting because Joe is such a great creation. And because Katie is, is bonkers in the best, sense, we sort of go, oh, well, they're sort of the same, but actually they're, they're not. And even their vocal um, register is, is totally different. It's a, it's, a, it's a proper acting performance. But I think I'm, I'm always in danger, I think, of when I'm doing this, of overlooking the regulars. So I thought you were going to also say perhaps uh, the arrival of the master, which is a, another great scene. But I've, gone, <laughs> uh, I've, I've ignored the regulars. Um, which I must make a mental note not to do, although it would be boring if every time I just went, Patrick Troughton, uh, whatever. But I chose the bowler-hatted Time Lords. Um, oh. I don't know if you see the mirror or uh, whether I'm the right way around. Um, uh, just yes, because... Right way just, around. just because... But I, uh, interesting, part of that choice, I, add, I added the caveat, and you will be able to give proper perspective on this, that if you've just been introduced to the Time Lords in the war games as the Doctor's people, and they're these austere, good, godlike figures, was there not a certain amount of uh, <laughs> um, uh, sort of disappointment that the next time you see them, that, that majesty has been completely sort of undercut and satirised by pesky Robert Holmes? Well, it's funny you should say that, Toby, because I always think that moment's a bit shonky. Um, uh. And... I don't know that I truly can say that I thought that at the age of five when I first saw it, because I think my five-year-old impression of Terror of the Autons is a, of lurid colour and visceral horror. So I think it was more a kind of gut reaction to the, the images. And actually, even now, for, for something that's nearly 50 years old, I think it moves along at quite a rattle if you compare it to other things at that time. It's very, very comic strip in a lot of ways, which if you're five actually works really well because you're not analyzing the plot you're not overthinking it you're just swept up in this kind of tidal wave of 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 one set piece after another and your safety valve other doctor and joe and the brigadier and they work really well so i think the shonky time lord cropping up on the dodgy cso probably went like that and when i watch it now i do think this is a little bit of an in-joke going on somewhere with Barry Letson and old, maybe an actor mate. I don't know if it was an actor mate of his, but that's how it feels now as an adult. Ah, so, so in fact, I've managed to choose the one thing you really don't like about it. That <laughs> this, is, this could be interesting. <laughs> so, <laughs> so okie dokie. I think you'll find. 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 Well, more of a clarification, really, because I got distracted and sidetracked when discussing the Doctor's insults to Joe after she has ruined his experiment. And yes, I know he wasn't calling her a bum-bender, although that's quite the playground insult. I do discuss this during the next episode where I pick up the thread, but I didn't want to leave it hanging lest I get a barrage of Twitter, I think you'll find. I know the line is... You ham-fisted bun-vendor, which basically means you cack-handed seller of cakes, uh, which is, as insults go, I suspect verging into the realms of the unique. But uh, what a line to conjure. You ham-fisted bun-vendor. More on that next week, but just some clarification that I do know what the actual line is. Richard's good, isn't he? Um, there's more from him next time. 
Okay, so that was Richard Marson. As I record this, I've got no idea what we've just said to each other because that's happening tomorrow. But uh, I'm, so I'm going to wibbly wobbly off uh, into time and space. And uh, I hope that whatever Richard and I did was suitably climactic uh, and satisfying. I am going to soon watch episode two, which will be the next episode of this. But for this particular instalment, stop me. That's a bomb. That's a wrap. Thanks very much. Ta-ta. Some sad news since I recorded that commentary and eulogised that veteran actor Frank Mills, who plays the radio telescope director. Frank has sadly passed away at the age of 93. So what an excellent innings he had, including being an extra in Quatermass and the Pit. But he was in almost everything, including, as I think I mentioned in the commentary, playing Betty's husband in Coronation Street for a couple of years. So we salute you, Frank, as you go to the great green room in the sky. It's also worth mentioning, as I'm recording uh, an addendum thing here, that Terror of the Autons can now be enjoyed on the BBC Season 8 Blu-ray where it has extra new special effects and has been given a little bit of polish. So uh, I'll probably go and watch it again now. <laughs> Welcome. It's Toby Haydock. Or is this just a plastic mask? Uh, no, it's me. Um, it's episode two of Terror of the Autons. So I want you to press play. In three, two, one, go. Uh, I paused at the end of episode one. Here we go. Episode two. Uh, I'm not sure we're ever quite going to marry up. Uh, <laughs> I'd love to get some form of consistency with that. But these things take so long to do anyway. It's not the setting up of the cameras, which does take a while. The editing afterwards. Well, I don't you know, edit any of the talk, but just the putting it all together. It's the fact that I've just spent 15 minutes trying to find the pen, which I had, uh, which fell on the floor, and then I moved so I could have it for episode. So I've got a new pen and put it here. I'm, I'm a ham-fisted. Well, I never actually finished explaining about ham-fisted bun vendor. In, uh, I, I, I said that as I remember saying it as a, I think to my partner that it was a, it was a fun. I, I called her one as a joke, and she said, um, "What does that actually mean?" And, and, and why did Doctor Who use? The, the word, uh, uh, that that secret's words. I do like I do like the fact that unit's in a castle uh, and uh, and, uh, uh, and and that nice that just that nice moment of the of the bomb and the explosion. Um, but yeah, ham-fisted bun vendor is of course he thinks she's the tea lady. Uh, so uh, 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 so presumably. Um, well, I don't know if vendor means that you you uh, exchange token, or if it just means giving out. So, um, otherwise, is she charging for the cakes? But perhaps vendor. I don't. I thought vend suggested a certain exchange of money. Um, but anyway, bun vendor, seller, purveyor of iced cakes, buns, whatever. Um, ham-fisted because she's ruined his experiment gives you ham-fisted bun vendor I like Robert Holmes's dialogue but I think that one's quite uh, that's <laughs> that's that I think that is a unique combination of words that you would never find in any other circumstance <laughs> um, 
schizoid dissociation however that's that i mean that uh, that that sounds pretty plausible to me to uh, explain joe's hypnotized state um and i quite like her sort of unblinking catatonia or, or i mean yes yeah, she blinks a little bit um but you know deliberately very slowly um and I remember reading an interview with Robert Holmes where he said he'd basically um, invented McDermott just to kill him off. So I have to say, when I started, I think I read the novel, the novel first. You know, when when McDermott arrived, I knew he was toast. Um, but uh, and, and now that's interesting because I remember when it was in black and white. I was never quite sure what colour the chair was, or oh, sort of quite what it looked like. And I do think the. And I, and I wonder if it's partially to do with the quality as well. It, it does have a strange sort of amorphousness about it. Uh, <laughs> uh, and it's, uh, it's a pretty grotty looking thing. But uh, the sadism of the idea of, you know, everyday objects, particularly of sort of plastic tat becoming murderous is a very gloriously Doctor Who thing. And I and I like uh, having having McDermott with the Irish accent saying it looks like a black pudding, uh, and you know you won't say I'll tell you that for nothing. Uh, and his his reaction to the fact that the plastic is cold and clammy is is I I like all of that. I believe all of that. Harry Taub's great um, in a story that isn't sort of famed for its. It's not got many memorable characters or actors in it really. I think that's another reason I thought I would struggle with it because there's not an awful lot to say about many of the characters or the. The cast, everyone's sort of in and out, rather, rather than Michael Wisher. Um, but it's, but it's not. I don't think it's his finest hour. He, he's been such, he's such a great servant to Doctor Who um, that we sort of talk about his other parts more. Um, that's pretty grim, and I, uh, the, 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 the sort of the fact you can see the hand, um, and that's. I mean, it's done backwards, isn't it? So. Uh, only stops breathing there so that's that's quite clever especially as it's done backwards now this is a glorious line about termination of employment and he does and he does sort of regard the corpse of his old boss with a certain well, i don't know it's very effective he's not his old boss but his old his old, old works manager but but it's quite out of character for rex fowl who spends much of the rest of this being a gibbering uh, uh scaredy scaredy pants um, I remember that, that clip being on the beginning of Resistance is Useless, the uh, the, the documentary they showed uh, before a repeat season uh, when I was at college and I recorded it. Uh, sorry, I've just remembered I forgot to do the claps at the beginning, which helped me to line it up for the editing. Uh, <laughs> that's another thing that's going to take time. Um, it's a, the change of Joe to f f from Liz is another. I love Liz Shaw, but uh, you can see that why they had elected for for a Joe type character instead. Um, ha having having Liz there to fulfil, you know, when when there's crossover with the Doctor. That doesn't necessarily really help with the companion. So Barry Litz's instincts as a direct, uh, as a producer, were were very 
sharp and of course you know this is his his period of him and Terence Dix as producer and script editor uh, produces a pretty consistent run on the show I would say Stephen Jack uh, who's uh, who, who was in Treasure Island with Patrick Trout in the film but was largely a voice man I think in fact he was a fellow of the Royal Society um, because he wasn't just a voice man I think he he uh, you know he worked a lot with voice and language um um that, that that's a nice line isn't it but he he sat in this chair and just slipped away um but yes Stephen jack and his son who's just passed away of coronavirus as i record this in lockdown which is one of the reasons behind the whole uh commentary podcast thing uh, uh andrew jack who is a uh, Stephen jack's son was a uh, a dialect coach he was karen gillen's dialect coach on guardians of the galaxy but he did all the big movies um lord of the rings all yeah look him up look him up and he was the son of Stephen jack so obviously there's something in the genes about how they understood language and dialect um and yeah Stephen jack was a was a prolific radio actor um uh, so you know an interesting story he has to tell sad sad for sad that andrew jack um passed away due to this vicious thing uh that has us in our grip i like the master's tie and pocket square are gold that's amazing and yet it still looks elegant on him black and gold it works uh <laughs> uh yeah rex rex farrell is rex farrell's a tricky character because he's a he is a bit pathetic and i think michael wisher is a is a terrific actor um uh but yeah i'm accentuating the positive i'm accentuating the positive um and it's 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 nice this early on that we have in farrell senior somebody who can resist the master because otherwise it just makes it all too easy for the master if he can just go around with his theme tune <laughs> uh intimidating everybody um it's great that he's got a theme tune and it's a wonderful piece of music um and this is a bit um this always reminds me a bit uh, 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 of the seeds of death where um uh uh water isn't it water uh, uh defeats the seeds here you need a, a certain a certain circumstance of temperature and or weather uh, to to make the the the, the baddie uh, prosper. In this case, it's the heat that uh, activates the troll doll. And it's weird because looking at that, you sort of go, "What? What's the appeal of that?" I totally don't understand. And then I remembered when I was younger, trolls. When I was about eight or nine, there were there were these Danish troll dolls. But the appeal of them was the hair, and they were sort of cute li little sort of elfin things but they had different sort of hairs and you styled them with your hair and you collected them and i had one and lots of people there were all those sorts of little crazes that you had when you were kids i remember there was a what were those those bags of water that were what were they called uh and uh you had, we had to give those back because apparently the water in them was bad or something but they were a craze there were various different crazes uh and so i can see why I, I I think that doll is pretty horrible, but it says in the script it's a pretty horrible looking thing. Um, but I, but I yeah, <laughs> it's it's pretty grotesque, and of course it's quite it's quite big as well. Um, 
Oh, Brigadier. And uh, yes, the Brigadier unit have uh, different military costumes. Uh, I think they work much better. Again, Barry, instinct, Barry Letts' instincts are right. I, I, I could see why they gave them different costumes for the invasion and for season seven. But Barry Letts rang the army and said, what would they wear? And they said pretty much what the army wear, except they would have blue uh epaulettes so they're called and, and and berets but blue of course would have would have made cso impossible so uh and, and we know how barry Letts likes his cso so uh he vetoed that uh but i don't know Nick, nicholas courtney preferred having this more sort of standard military costume and hadn't liked the uh the the bobby bartlett design which had premiered with the invasion um and I think that makes it a bit more realistic, a bit more grounded. Uh, and I think that the, the colours just work slightly better. Um, did he? Easy love. <laughs> That's not the way to chat up a lady, Captain Yates. Um, uh, the, the, no, so they want, they were, the, you know, the, it's interesting to see because we know that there was. You're acting like one. That's Captain Yates. Um, it's it's interesting, sort of seeing this where they're going. Shall we have a, shall we have a love interest between Captain Yates and Joe Grant? And then, after not very long, they go. Yeah, I don't think we're quite gonna, we're quite gonna suggest that they're interested in each other. <laughs> uh, and I remember thinking, I remember reading about Mike Yates and Mike. It was quite a tough name when I was when I was younger. Tough, pip, tough guys in tough things were called things like Mike and Ian. I remember my friend Peter Sato, who's a brilliant character comedian, did a, did a character called Mike Adams, uh, and it was exactly that sort of seventies kind of. I've got a hairy chest and I wear brute and I've uh, I've got a chain and I talk like this and I'm Mike. I'm a tough guy, um, and I sort of imagined Mike Yates being a sort of captain who was a bit rough and tumble. So I was quite surprised that. Um, and he's not the only one. Captain Turner in the invasion is very jolly. The sort of I, I think it hadn't perhaps imprinted upon me that officers, you know, the an officer was a tended to be a sort of a, a, an upper class person. So that sort of that that jolliness is it goes hand in hand with with that. And 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 you know, if you're doing TV shorthand, you know, the captain therefore is a bit sort of jolly, whereas the you know the the non commissioned ranks are sort of more the sort of tough. Uh, tough guys but it, it it is a bit of a culture shock when you're expecting sort of grizzled grizzled military ease if you like when you actually get a sort of cheery boy scout uh who probably doesn't fancy joe grant um and it's, it's weird because i don't the the circus stuff i don't think really landed with me when i i first watched this but it is a novel setting for uh for a doctor who and that i mean i'm one does have disquiet now about how, uh, you know, performing as animals are, uh, were treated and probably wouldn't want to think too hard about that. Although, you know, seeing elephants in the, you know, in the ark, they've got an elephant, haven't they? And it's like, wow, this is amazing. So there's three elephants. There are four elephants. That's, is, is that the most elephants ever in Doctor Who? I think five elephants. This is the elephants. I love the fact Joe's stashed herself in the back of the car. And that's John Pertwee's mate, isn't it? Bobby Roberts with his glittery jacket, who was the circus guy. 
Um, I love the fact that John Pertwee knew people at the circus. I know guys got a, I know somebody who's got a hovercraft um, or, or whatever. He, he, I think John knew, John Pertwee knew a lot of people, you know, uh, shall I water ski? Um, uh, and, uh, but the, the circus setting actually, and the circus is a good, so I, I, I'd like to perhaps see more of it because, you know, malevolent clowns is a very Doctor Who thing, isn't it? The sort of and the fact that the circus lot here, they they sort of form a bit of a pitchfork mob a bit later on, um, which I'm not sure shows circus folk in the best light. Um, but I, I think they could have perhaps done more to, you know, invert the sort of jollity of the circus and turn it turn it grotesque. But I suppose they're too busy to, so busy turning everyday objects grotesque. This is more of a this is more of a just a, a more interesting backdrop, perhaps than 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 your normal uh, than, than your normal base or whatever, and and that's the function that it serves. But um, uh, it it yeah it does it does mean we get uh, a setting we're not quite uh, we're not quite used to. Um, but again, they're not they're not an awful lot of uh, autons. Roy Stewart though, it's Toberman. Uh, Toberman from Tomb of the Cybermen, who, having had a pretty decent part of a strong, silent man, uh, Roy Stewart, who ran a gym, I think he ran a restaurant as well. It was weird because he was, I don't think he ever did any, when Tomb came back, they, they got most of the cast together, uh, and, and they didn't get Roy Stewart, I don't know why, uh, and, and yet he actually, he was around for a lot longer, he's no longer with us, um, but as far as I know, was was never interviewed, uh, and he's great in Tomb of the Cybermen. Sadly, he's, he doesn't get to do an awful an awful lot in this, and it is a bit bit of a sort of stereotypical thing going on. Uh, I, I, <laughs> Rossini is horrible. Uh, I mean, yeah, Tony does it. Tony, the strong man, doesn't even doesn't even say anything. But um, I wonder how they sold it to the Roberts brothers as well. Will you, will you have your circus in? Uh, Bobby, will you have your... I can't do impressions, but that's that's my John Pert to you. Uh, 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 yeah, can you have your circus in Doctor Who? Yeah, yeah. What, what are you going to do with... How, how are you going to show the circus? Uh, we're going to show you as largely unpleasant people uh, who are slightly crooked, uh, drink and smoke, avaricious... Uh, prone, to, prone to pitchfork mob rule. <laughs> uh, uh, but 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 yeah, and so I think yeah. What's the positives here? Um, I well, I like I, I think John Bascom's great as as uh, Rossini. Uh, and yeah, and uh, and the, I, I do like the gentlemen don't talk about money. They they don't talk about. Gentlemen rarely talk about anything else. Uh, is I is that from something else? I think it probably is. Um, and it isn't me. Yeah, I'd forgotten. Yes, I'd forgotten actually what a sort of thug he is. And they have actually the the sparring between the two of them, the verbal spar between uh, Rossini and the and the Doctor is rather fun. It's it's entertaining second string villainy. Um, and Joe is so game, isn't she? She's stowed into the back of the car. Uh, she's rung the brigadier and said, "The doctor's here, but I'm not. I'm not. I'm not waiting, brigadier. I'm going to go and help." Uh, and uh, yes, here's poor old uh, Christopher Burgess, uh, the professor. Uh, Christopher Burgess was at drama school with 
Bernard Kay, my friend. Christopher Burgess, actually. He was at drama school with Bernard Kay and Maurice Perry and Rex Robinson. All of them uh, Doctor Who types. I think they're all at the uh, Bristol, uh, not the Bristol Vic, all at the uh, Old Vic Drama School together. Uh, if not all in the same year, but they might well have been. It's beyond me. Yeah. Uh, uh, and of course, the, yes, this is the, this is one of the insidious. It's John Pertwee's uh, Yeti on the loo in Tooting Beck, isn't it? Take something ordinary. Uh, Tommy Reynolds is the uh, diminutive actor here, who'd already been one of the Chumbleys uh, in Galaxy Four. That's effective. That works. Um, Mrs. Farrell's CSO kitchen, uh, but it's and 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 actually, yeah, I do like the favouring of the feet for the sort of death kicks. That's pretty grim. So we've had we've had the, we've had the. The, the 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 McDermott's tapping hand on the phone episode one, and then the and then the death kick, which I think is pretty, because seeing a sort of post death or during the sort of nerve reflex or muscle effects is is a pretty grim, so sort because of, it's it's a sort of, it's like, you know it's 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 a sort of cadaverous reaction in it. Although you know it would have taken a lot longer to strangle him. I I I think the fact that it's a sort of in death kick uh, is. Is pretty horrid. Um, that's a good shot in the mirror, seeing Joe in the uh, seeing Joe in the window. That's very good. Uh, uh, oh yes, this is pretty grim. I, yes, meat's very expensive. I, I, I shall feed you to the. I shall feed you to my circus animals. Uh, yes, Bobby, we're being very nice about the circus. Uh, we just suggest that they uh, they feed people to their animals. Um, uh, but yes, Christopher Burgess, who we saw b- before, uh, had agreed to do my podcast, Who's Round? He he was a resident at uh, Charterhouse, which is a a, 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 a a retired person's home that also uh, has Robert Aldous, who's in The Dalek Invasion of Earth in it, uh, and uh, Richard Franklin. Um, uh, and... Uh, Christopher Burgess was poorly; he'd got dementia and emphysema and all sorts. But he actually agreed via Robert Aldous to do to do my Who's Round, and it was it was the summer, and I'd got my kids, and I was going through a divorce. So when I had the kids, I you know really had to be be there for them. And um, but I really wanted to interview Christopher Burgess because he wasn't on any of the DVDs, and he's he's really good in this. He's really good in Planet of the Spiders, and he's 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 good in Enemy of the World. Um, and he was also in Joss's Giants. I was delighted when I... Because I think I just got this on video when Joss's Giants was on and I liked Christopher Burgess's this. Then I watched Joss's Giants and it was like the Barry Letts rep because Jenny McCracken, who's in Carnival of Monsters, who I think was considered for Joe, who Barry Letts used a lot, and Christopher Burgess were the sort of two second string adults in it. And Christopher Burgess, all in that point later in his career, played sort of slightly dowdy, sort of Bicardigan, sort of slightly shabby older men. Uh... Uh, and um, uh, and then so I, yeah, I'd I'd really wanted to 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 interview him, and and he'd agreed, much to Robert Aldous's surprise, because he was so poorly. So I thought, well, well what I'll do is I'll arrange it with the the sister because he was in the hospital ward. Um, you know, when 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 I've got the kids back to their mum in a couple of weeks, and and uh, we can do it. And then sadly, I got an email from Robert saying that Christopher. Passed away, which was a shame. A friend did visit him at his home a decade or so earlier and had a bit of a chat to him. Uh, now I think, do you see? 
Yeah, he's... Oh, yes, blood. You don't see blood in Doctor Who very often. More often than you see five elephants. But still, nonetheless, blood is... That's the sort of thing that as a kid I'd go, oh, I see Doctor Who's a programme for grown-ups because I was desperate for it to be a programme for grown-ups. Um, so poor old Professor Phillips, but that's a very Doctor Who thing, isn't it? You, you appealing to the humanity latent in somebody that is being made to do uh, evil things. But yeah, this is the this is the friendly circus folk being portrayed as uh, uh, bat-wielding thugs. Uh, look at... Uh, but again, that's I'd love to see more of that of of sort of psycho clowns. Um, uh, I, I'd love it if the story had more, yeah, baseball bat wielding clowns doing the Doctor a mischief. Um, I think I think that's great. I yes, more of that, please. Um, I always think that Terry Walsh is one of the policemen. I always think he looks a little bit like Michael Caine. Um, and in fact, I think I met Terry Walsh once, and I think he said he was Michael Caine's official stuntman. I'm sure he said that. I, I, I think he said it. To, he was talking to somebody else. He said, "Well, I'm now Michael Caine's official stuntman," um, and I, I can see there is a sort of similarity in in the look. A uh, bit, bit of CSO there, uh, which is very, it's very popular around this time. Um, I do, I, I do like the dematerialization circuit as well. There's something rather comforting about that. I'd like to see a bit more of the dematerialization circuit it's uh it's just a nifty prop i think that's all that benton does in this episode this scene isn't it oh no in this no 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 he's in he's in the beginning he's in the opening scenes but i think there's one episode where benton's only in one scene of this um and and we have to look, watch out for where nicholas courtney isn't actually nicholas courtney as well but again yes auton's being policeman this is a terrifying idea uh, again, it was one of those things you read about going, God, this must be the stuff of nightmares. Um, but I always think the mask looks slightly like it's got it's got drawn on eyebrows. So he looks a bit, I, th I think he does look a bit like Michael Caine when he turns around there. And now he looks like a mask. Um, that's actually not as bad as I was anticipating because I remember going, oh, come on. Um, and I quite like the new Auton faces. I think I prefer the ones in Spearhead, uh, even though those ones are actually... A better idea you can't you know they they haven't got gaps for the actors to breathe through and the actors to see through which is pretty obviously why the the eyes and the, the mouth are there and the spearhead autons but i think overall as a look i prefer the spearhead autons but um that sort of that sort of blankness again has the potential to be very disturbing if you want it to be oh my goodness i've just realized i've got to the end of the episode and have I chosen, have I got a favourite thing? Oh, gosh. There I am going, I nearly interviewed that actor. Um, I didn't say it like that, but you know what I mean. Um, now, what is my favourite thing about episode two? Of the oh, all right. Yes, and because it kind of ties in with a little bit that I liked in episode one, and it's only a tiny moment, but I think... And because I'm not going to be wild about Barry Letts' direction, because I, I, I think it is a bit more straightforward than, a, than that of a, of a, of a Camfield or, or a Michael Ferguson um, or a Derek Martinez, you know, who the director's... Um, 
who I think really shine uh, during this period of the show. I'm going to choose... Uh... <laughs> so, I don't think Richard Marson will choose this. But you never know. And I'm not going to play silly sausages and try and second guess. Because that way always... It's like when you do a pub quiz and you go, oh, is this a trick question? And they go, no, it was, it was just the question. So, I'm choosing... Farrell Senior's Kicking Death Feet. That's what I'm going to choose. So now I'm going to nip to the future to speak to Richard Marson and see whether he has also chosen. And I get extra points if he chooses that exact sequence of words. Farrell Senior's Kicking Death Feet. Because it's grim, isn't it? It's grim and it's effective. Simple but effective and also doesn't show anything yet suggests something grimmer by so doing. Okay, let's nip to the future. Well, um, oh, let's go on to episode two I have written. But I, I guess as an intro to episode two, just because there were a couple of questions that I had, if you've got the time from um, from your introduction. Uh, in terms of writing for magazines now, and Doctor Who magazine, which I do, I sit on my sofa, I check the internet, I type things up, I file my copy by, my copy by pressing send. Um, how did you physically do it? What were you working on? Uh, and and if you made a mistake, did you have to sort of start again? Uh, and, and did you have to sort of post with deadlines in mind and things like that? Well, I mean, the first thing to say is actually for the time, it was very well paid. And I say that because it's actually, if you look at it, I think journalism has got steadily paid less and less well to the extent that now people expect it to be free largely so I was lucky that even though you couldn't say that Marvel comics were up there with I don't know uh, the Sunday Times they were paying a decent rate for what you did and that meant I could invest in some actual kit and in those days the state-of-the-art thing was an Amstrad twin disk drive word processor which I spent what seemed like a fortune on and did most of my work on and this thing used to emit very strange and peculiar noises um it was a sort of like it was also like you were cooking the words you'd you'd type them in and then you'd hear this kind of uh, 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 you know and and hopefully the thing would save but i do have various hideous memories of typing up stuff and getting to kind of two o'clock in the morning um and then the whole thing crashing and you would just completely lose three thousand words in one fell swoop and it expected to be delivered the next day I would go to Pronto Print in Durham where I was at university and it would be faxed because that's how state-of-the-art it was I would fax through my copy that I printed out on my crappy Amstrad printer which also used to make used to go <coughs> and I would get people knocking on my door Toby because I had a television and a video and I had this Amstrad and they were all kind of in the in the early to mid 80s, quite science fiction in themselves. So people would knock on my door from other colleges in the union and say, excuse me, I hope you don't mind. But I've heard you've got this, you know, computer. Can I have a look at it? And it was always generally the boffins from the sort of science colleges. So, you know, I hope I was kind and didn't say, you know, take your B.O. out of my bedroom. Um, but, uh, but, it, but the, you know, that was it. I, I had this amazing technology, but it was sometimes not so amazing. And I, I can remember literally weeping at the thought that I've now got to redo the whole thing. Otherwise, it's not going to make it to Marvel in time. Oh, my goodness. 
Well, I, we say that as I'm recording this on uh, on Zoom, and if anything goes wrong, that's all gone as well. So we're we're always prone to the same uh, the same terrors of, uh, of of modern technology losing our stuff. Well, look. Um, I have chosen my thing from episode two. In episode one, I managed to choose the one thing you didn't like about the episode. So let's see if we're a bit more in accord. What is your favourite thing from episode two of Terror of the Autons, please, Richard? Okay, so I have gone... There's a moment with a chair. So the moment when uh, the chair eats poor old Rex Farrell's uh, business colleague. I think he's a he's supposed to be a business colleague of his dad, mm. and he comes in and and you know there's this whole kind of scene where you see Roger Delgado at his finest, and he commands this sceptical bloke to take a seat in this novelty chair, which were very popular at the time, and my father had something not dissimilar, which added to the terror of then seeing this thing smother the poor man inside. And and you know it was so of the time. You know Robert Holmes obviously had great fun riffing off every contemporary use of plastic. Um, I think Doomwatch had done a plastic related story too. So there was, you know, it was obviously in the ether somehow, <laughs> but it was re really horrifying. I mean, if you want, you know, even watching it now and even noticing that they, I think they did it in reverse. So it's a yeah. video disc effect. And you can see the actors having to help it along a bit. Even without that, something because of, uh, of the memory of it, I find it terrifying to watch now. And of course, there is the brilliant sub James Bond line at the end where they ask for his cards and they say, he just slipped away, yes. which is um, <laughs> fantastic for a children's program. Very callous. Well, we're, we're on similar lines here. Not quite, um, although we're both reveling in death. I went for, <laughs> <laughs> I went for Farrell Senior's Kicking Death Beat. Because I find the way that they they depict the death of um, Rex Farrell's dad when he gets strangled by the doll, instead of seeing him get strangled, you just see his feet sort of kicking, and that's quite undoctor who. That's quite sort of it's minimalist, and yet because it's minimalist, it's actually even more horrible than uh, than if we'd seen it. Um, it is a story of inventive death, isn't it? <laughs> It's quite, what's extraordinary about it now, looking back, is, you know, I had a lot of dealings with Barry Letts back in the day. And, you know, as a man, I mean, he was just the most lovely man. I mean, kind, generous, thoughtful, no pushover. I mean, he could be tough and he could, he could certainly do his job as a producer. He was a seasoned BBC pragmatic producer. So I don't think he was, he was, he wouldn't take pity on someone and say, oh, well, keep a rubbish lighting director because I you know I'm a nice man I think he had high standards but then to watch him do a program like this knowing how I mean I think he thought of it as a mistake actually um, because he was directing the show as well as producing it and I think you can tell he very much had his director's hat on not his producer's hat so a lot of the decisions about what they showed and that's a really good example you yeah, I'm not even sure you'd show that now. Certainly years later, I remember we did a, 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 a Blue Peter with a lot of clips from Doctor Who. And we got into real trouble because some of those clips were seen as really unacceptable for tea time. And my, I got out of it in the end when I was hauled over the coals by saying, but these things were shown at five o'clock, albeit in 1977 or 71 or whatever. And in the end, they had to go, oh, 
oh, oh yes, well, okay, you know, but in fact, standards had shifted. And actually, Terror of the Autos, as you rightly say, is a kind of smorgasbord of, of, of death and, and horror. And, you know, and it's, it's all done with a kind of relish. <laughs> <laughs> Well, but talking about that, I mean, it's interesting how I remember, you know, when, when I was young, a, a knife was seen as a sort of fairly low-key weapon, you know, a death by knife you could sort of have uh, in a film or a show, whereas guns, because they blew things to bits, were a bit, were a bit yeah. more sanitised in a way. But a knife was put, a knife through the chops or in the ble- in the back or is it, was, was a sort of acceptable form yeah, of dispatch uh, in a children's show. Knives now, you wouldn't let anywhere near anything that teenagers are watching. Um, Absolutely. Right. Well, it's in schools. Most schools have the zero, even for a toy knife. So, you know, I think that has culturally become a, a no-go area. Yeah. Welcome back. It's episode three of Terror of the Autons. So I would like you, if you would, to press play in three, two, one, now. I'm watching the BBC DVD, so I'm quite enjoying watching this in colour. Um, as I, said, I have seen it before in colour, but um, I think, as I say, I was used to it in black and white. I got, I, I then had a very dodge ropey video quite late on, I think, um, of it in colour that I'm not sure I really watched that much. And then obviously got the DVD, and that was the beautiful thing about the DVDs is that they actually opened up a lot of stories that you want to previously seen and then just that little sort of nudge up in quality suddenly of picture suddenly can 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 make things seems more enjoyable certainly a few of the Hartnells I know I I uh I got a greater appreciation of because I could sort of see them which helps um it's a it's amazing considering that no actual proper color print of this exists how they've uh, how they've managed to get the the off-air colour and meld it with the film print. I think it looks very, very good. Um, and this, I remember this being the sort of thing I wanted more of because this was this was quite a mythical uh, uh, aspect of uh, this story as well. Was that there was the famous story of of Terry Walsh falling down the hill, which which we will see, and you get the handguns, which I love. Um, the idea that the Autons had... I remember I wrote some sort of fan fiction where um, an action on Auton would reveal itself not by having its hand drop like that, but by actually blowing its own sort of hand uh, off, uh, you know, the first time it revealed itself to be a bad guy. Actually, the idea of it shooting its own fingers to bits to kill you the first time. Um, But it's a great... It's a... Again, anything that takes something ordinary, like a hand and turns it into, oh my god, a lethal weapon. A hidden death um, is, a, is, a, is a fantastic idea. And yeah, we're in a quarry. Um, quarries look great. Um, they're, they're great for action sequences. They look good. Uh, you can control what you're up to. Oh, and there's a, there's a unit soldier there. Yes, I think he's not long for this world. He's, he's like the equivalent of a red shirt in, in Star Trek. Um, we never see the brigadier having to write those letters, do we? To go, uh, I'm afraid. It's like it was always good in spooks, wasn't it? When somebody died and they had to have a sort of, oh, there we go. Oh, look at that. That's great. Uh, boom. Ah, 
look at that. That's great. That's what unit stories are all about. It's terribly bloodthirsty, isn't it? Um, but yeah, in spooks, they'd always have this sort of the funerals or whatever, saying, say, you know, uh, Martin worked in uh, the, the civil service, you know, and their parents would never know that actually they'd been real heroes. I'm sure with unit soldiers, it was the same. It's like, I'm afraid he died in a training exercise. Uh, oh, but the, but he's but there isn't anything of him because he's been disintegrated. I'm sure the Autons disintegrated people in Spearhead from Space, didn't they? But I, I like the sort of puffs. That's a brilliant. So that's a great stunt, which I know is not all of it's entirely deliberate. And the fact that he gets up again straight away and starts climbing back is terrific. I love that. I like this whole sequence. Um, yeah, because you know. A monster being indestructible is a great thing. Um, a monster that is disguised as a is a policeman is a great thing. Uh, this is all very Doctor Who, and you can yeah. So more of that, but I think I I think I wanted more of that. Uh, so I'm very happy so far um, uh, about that sequence um, and its execution. Because Terry Walsh wasn't supposed to, I believe, fall fall that far, um, or or I think he was he was hit he was hit by the car when he shouldn't have been, um, uh, and 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 was sort of sent flying over, but the cameras were still rolling. So that's the that was the 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 the, the story that abounded at the time. It was one of the it was one of the early Doctor Who anecdotes. There were a few like that where, um, you know. They're like part of the furniture because those were the stories that were told about particular stories. And yeah, Terror of the Autons, questions in the House of Lords and Terry Walsh getting accidentally knocked all the way down the hill. Um, but it's the fact that he gets up and starts walking back. And I do like... The Doctor is a bit of a hypocrite, but I do, I do quite like the fact he hasn't got any... T he's got an absolutely no time for... For chatting about the plan, <laughs> it's just like yes, it's obvious. Um, and I, I have to say, I have a lot of sympathy. He's the Doctor's the sort of guy that would get the thing, the flat pack from IKEA, and go. I'm not looking at the bit of paper that says how to do it. I'm, I know how to do it. And then would be furious three hours later. <laughs> uh, and. I do. I like that. I like the dynamic between the brigadier and the doctor. I know. I know. In a grown-up program, there would be less of a twinkle. But it is. It is a program that we fall in love with as kids. A certain sort of coziness is is nice, and I love the fact that we know and love the brigadier and Nicholas Courtney. When I was younger. The, having a military figure like the brigadier was so tough and and, and he seemed so right and uh, and I th and I think actually a lot of the sort of twinkly stuff didn't quite register as much because they were all grown ups um, and, and and seemed so sort of grown up and official um, so actually it didn't undermine it at all uh, and it's only as you as a, as you get a bit older and you and you realise there's a a, a a sort of rapport there. <laughs> and and these two work together so brilliantly. It is partially because Pertwee works quite well when he's being really patronising, but but she takes it and she's she's. I don't think she's diminished by it because oh, and he's 
because she she is capable in her own way and she sort of lets it sort of wash over her a little bit he is a bit of a git to her at times when it and, it and and it is sometimes unpleasant but but i think as a general as a general thing their dynamic is 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 rather delightful and it suits both characters quite well uh and this is a very very john pertwee is doctor who moment <laughs> walking out slightly furious <laughs> I love the fact that he kicked it. He just kicked the TARDIS door. <laughs> and I like this. Oh, that is terrifying. I, I'm a I'm a kicker of inanimate objects, and it's the worst thing you can do, especially because I'm trodden on. I'm I'm a treader on rakes. I've done it more often than I'd like to think. But then, of course, you've got this. Yeah. Oh, the Doctor's amused by the fact he's just stranded a merciless alien psychopath. Uh, on the planet beautiful now daffodils i didn't realize this were 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 given away with 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 plastic uh with plastic with uh, washing powder so this was a thing plastic daffodils and of course when when a thing is a new thing you go what, what more could you want a a, a a daffodil that will never die i've got 200 bulbs in the in the corridor that need to be planted and they will die unless i plant them so I, sh- I should really be doing that instead of doing a Doctor Who podcast. This is these these are great. Um, I think the uh, again I wasn't wild about them when I was younger, but now I I really like them because because I get the the contrast between what they represent the oversized, over smiley, gaudily coloured. They're like they're sort of like male- malevolent yellow coats, aren't they? It's sort of like. Uh, Heidi High with Botox um, and what lies beneath you know the blank faced uh, automatons the the, the um, you know blank faced lacking in individuality lacking in features uh, cold um, and, I, and I think that's a that's a that's a another great understanding from Robert Holmes of what Doc Tude as well have these gaudy uh um uh flower vendors uh, uh d- d- you know in 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 sunshine yellow uh that actually are you know are the the murderers he's the the, the alien killers he's for somebody that, that worried about his abilities as a dramatic actor john pert was very good at being testy and furious and and no nonsense you know he's not he was he was known as a comic and a and a voice man a comedy voice man and he's uh i i you know he's got a dramatic urgency about him that fits him like a glove i hope he wasn't and i know he i believe he could be quite quite difficult but i and that was probably bred from his insecurity which is a shame i don't like the idea that he's insecure because he shouldn't be because he's very good but it's it's easy to underestimate sometimes how even the most confident dashing elegant looking performer can be a bag of nerves so remember that when you tweet somebody who you think's got it made uh, and and say something mean to them um they might be dying inside brown rose dermot tui uh brown rose of course is a joke because the name brown rose sounds a bit like brown nose because he is a uh, he is a uh, sort of civil servanty type that uh, that this 
this era has great disdain for, which I think is a great British tradition of uh, being run up by the civil service and not approving of them. Uh, uh, and and this is the doctor, isn't it? Um, uh, uh, using that sort of uh, unpleasant hierarchy um, to his advantage, and and this this can be seen as as reflecting badly on the third doctor. And I think I have read it like that, uh, of the doctor being this sort of clubbable guy who who uses his his influence to to push around a a, a junior civil servant. But but I think Brownrose is supposed to be a bit of a Burke and the doctors using you know the weapons of the establishments against the establishment itself even if that weapon is a sort of bit of name dropping and, and pushing about uh, uh, pushing about a pen pusher um and i was yes <laughs> um but yeah brown nose is a is is a is a good joke um he gets top billing this episode beats mike knocks michael wisher down the credits uh Poor old Mrs. Farrell. Um, you're not going to be able to make yourself a cup of tea, love. Your kitchen's made a CSO. Uh, <laughs> but this is, you know, this is an ordinary family setup. This is the sort of world that uh, the Pertwee era looked to sort of ruffle the feathers of and upset. Um But, yeah, is the Doctor, is the third Doctor an establishment figure? He sort of has his cake and eats it, really. He certainly looks fantastic, doesn't he, in his frilly shirt and his cape. If you can wear a frilly shirt and a cape and get away with it, I think I, Larry Turner does say that in that 30 Years in the TARDIS documentary, doesn't she? And, and it's actually quite right that not many people can get away with with. The, that that sort of outfit but Pertwee is so incredible looking uh, now Norman Stanley here playing the telephone operator who's checked out by Mike Yates um, uh, was cast quite late because this was going to be Hayden Jones who is also the voice of the Autons and who also the voice of Joe Grundy in the Archers uh, for a bit uh, until he died and was taken over by Edward Kelsey also uh, a servant to Doctor Who but Hayden Jones got cast in The Mind of Evil as Lenny Vosper a better part than this one of the 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 inmates of the prison and thugs uh, and so you know even though Michael Wisher had been in it only a couple of stories ago there was a season break so instead Norman Stanley uh, is cast quite late as the telephone operator and it's his last job he he, he was dead a couple of years later. Died in seventy three. This is seventy one. So uh, uh, we don't know. I don't know much about Norman Stanley at all, apart from that. Uh, cast quite late in the day, and uh, was dead before I was born. Bless him. Um, but is the second person to play the master because he is the telephone engineer. Is the master um, uh, showing that the master's art of disguise is pretty phenomenal. And takes in a, a body shape as well as um, you know, excellently fitting latex mask until the moment it has to be taken off. Then it then it comes off like a doddle. John away. I like the way she says "taken John away." She just it just falters slightly. 
Oh, poor old Mrs. Farrell. Barbara Leake. Um, it is pretty grotesque, isn't it? I like the fact that Doctors has a sort of lab um, in a castle. Unit, H, Unit HQ's never... A, is it ever a castle again? I don't know. Um, uh, so, yeah, the... the 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 series of inventive deaths shows a gleeful a gleefully sort of morbid imagination from Robert Holmes, who, uh, lest we forget, is only four stories in. He's sort of found his feet with the Crotons and the Space Pirates, neither of which you would call typical Robert Holmes. Spearhead from Space is slightly different because it's all made on film, so it's it's difficult to account for. It's something of an anomaly. It's something of a one-off. Uh, uh, spearhead just because of the way that it looks and, and what it represents and it's setting up a new doctor um, but but this is this is I think the first for which it must be celebrated the first flourishing of the sort of Robert Holmes successfully marrying his sense of humor I think because the, the the space pirates is funny ish and it certainly has funny in, intent in places with Milo Clancy but where his sense of humor combines with his storytelling and he goes well why don't i have fun with the way that i kill people why don't i create a character like mcdermott just to kill him off okay i've got a killer chair no that's not very efficient so then we'll have uh a killer doll oh no that's not efficient either then we'll have a killer telephone and 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 you can tell he's having a great time um so all of those ideas, I think, are, 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 are pretty fantastic. Uh, no, they haven't got a sliding molecular, or whatever it is, molecular analyzer in stock. <laughs> and the brigadier very much takes it in his stride. Um, the, their relationship is is already pretty well established which is very nice um but he's been tetchy with both yates and benton uh, in this story oh yes oh so yates and joe are going to uh make coco in the doctor's lab uh which is uh <laughs> yeah no, actually, I like that Auton mask. It's, yes, it works Works slightly better from a distance, actually. Uh, I'm the master. There we go. That works. That's fine. I I, I always think that uh, he goes a, the long way about making a cup of cocoa because he uses a Bunsen burner and an uncovered beaker full of water. You want to cover that to make it boil, or just use a kettle. Um, but I suppose I am in a house with all mod cons in 2020, and uh, that perhaps it was perfectly normal to boil water on top of a Bunsen burner. They are in a lab. Um, um, so, oh, here they are in the, the Doctor and the Breeder on location in the factory, which... Uh, Oh, is this where Joe's on the phone to Mr. Campbell, the Dolly Scotsman, uh, one of the one of the great unseen characters in Doctor Who? Uh, 
Uh, you can oh, I'll sort that wee lassie out with a whatever it is. She's you're a dolly Scotsman, Mister Campbell, <laughs> and she is. You would you do anything for her? She is so charming. Um, uh, jo, yeah, Joe is Joe is lovely, and she has all the 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 qualities for a Doctor Who companion. Actually, um, she you know she's 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 capable, but she's also scatty and prone to get in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> That's a very Doctor Who image. A soldier with t- t- two mugs, thing of cocoa, the gun in his hand, shooting a doll to bits. Yeah, okay, I'll take that. I'll take that. That's Doctor Who. <laughs> uh, and, oh, and... Oh, is this going to be my favourite bit of the episode? I do like this bit. Um, uh, coming up when... Uh, I, I, yeah, I would like more Autons, I think. I do like the Autons. Uh, and we st- we still haven't seen an awful lot of them, have we? But I suppose I suppose not, there's not an awful lot they can do. I mean, they, at least they talk in it. They don't talk in Spearhead. Are they actually better when they don't talk? I don't know. They become perhaps a bit generic-y, monstery when they're ch- chatting away. Far away, are going away. Um, whereas actually, when they're they're sort of silent and deadly at hiding in a safe. <laughs> Uh, are you just obviously it's not you yeah you just you just wait in the safe uh, if anybody opens it just shoot them uh, <laughs> especially if it's <laughs> if it's a soldier in Wurzel Gummidge I know he hasn't been Wurzel Gummidge yet um, oh so yes okay that's a nice bit of detective work uh to, to, to get us to the next part of the story um, although you you would want your villains to cover their tracks a bit I think in this day and age uh, but it's it's yeah we it, it does give us the opportunity for a bit of uh, Holmes and Watsoning with the Doctor and this rather glorious moment where the Doctor opens a safe and there's an Auton in it <laughs> love that that's just great <laughs> yes, they are, Doctor. Remarkably persistent. Uh, and we're straight back to Unit HQ. That's very economic storytelling. Uh, oh yeah, because there's because um, there's cuts to this episode. Because Bill McGurk, I, I always thought Bill McGurk was the Auton policeman in the opening scenes on location, but he's not because uh, he's credited as fetch some cocoa, and he says fetch a tin of co- t- fetch a tin of what? Um. You were making cocoa in my lab. Um, but uh, Bill McGurk, who's in Enemy of the World, Barry Letts uses a lot of his actors a lot, which is very loyal. Um, and, and unless you're not in one of his productions, then you go, it's an awful close shop that I can't get into. That is the that is the, the truth of an actor's career. If you're in the shop, it's a lovely boutique that serves all the right people. If you're not in the shop, it's a bad shop that's locked and everyone in it's a git. Um but Bill McGurk sadly got into the shop, but uh, uh, then I can't. But everything he wanted to buy wasn't available. Bill McGurk filmed some scenes as a policeman um, who gets killed, who who goes into the coach, has a bit of a chat with Farrell and the Autons, and and, and gets killed. Uh, and all of his scenes end up on the cutting room floor, so he's still credited. Like Dave Carter in episode one of the Android Invasion. Dave Carter, we saw in episode one of this. He's in episode one of the Android Invasion and is cut, uh, but still gets a credit. 
There are a few others uh, like that. I think Dean Hollingsworth is the bus conductor in one of the episodes of Greatest Show in the Galaxy. Anyway, again, it's me getting bothered about credits again. Not bothered. It's just uh, they're people who are credited in an episode they are not in, which is what happens with Bill McGurk on this episode. Why do I care? Because I'm sure you don't. I can only apologise. I should have been going, look at that brilliant bit with the murderous telephone cable of death. And instead I'm going, ah, uh, well, well, actually these closing credits have this rather... So, um, policeman Bill McGurk, uh, he was sometimes, I think on Enemy of the World, he's credited as William McGurk. He, uh, he, uh, uh, and he did some stuff at the RSC as well. Anyway, listen, you want me to choose something that I have, sorry, I'm eating a bar. Um, I've got to keep my strength up. Otherwise, how will I remember facts that nobody wants to hear? Um... So, I have to choose for Richard Marson. For those who've forgotten or haven't listened to episodes one and two, if, if, in which case, what are you doing? Well, I wanted to tune in to see if you'd uh, talk about why Bill McGurk is credited. <laughs> um, I'm going to choose the, the whole the scene in the quarry. Um, just because it was my standout moment of the whole story when I was younger. And it seemed to have everything, action, gunfire, a stunt, good location. Um, and and as, as I say, for a story that disappointed me a bit when I was a kid, that was sort of everything that I wanted the story to be. So, the scene in the quarry with the Auton policeman, including that wonderful stunt, even though some of it was a mistake <laughs> from, uh, from the mighty Terry Walsh. Uh, so I'm going to pop to the future to see what Richard Marson has to say and uh, to be honest with him about what I've chosen and see if we have chosen the same thing. I'm going to make a prediction. I wonder if he's going to choose the thing I nearly chose, which is the, you know, the, the sort of garish daffodil men um, look of the Autons that hides, you know, such blank evil beneath. Um, I, I might hold that in in reserve for episode four. Who knows? Because uh, I've gone for the, the quarry scene, but I wonder if Richard will choose that. Um, anyway, let's go and see what he says. Um, well, into uh, episode three. Well, in fact, before we do that, let's do another question. You, you say you met all these amazing people when you were working for Doctor Who magazine. Um, who made the biggest impression on you as a young as a young man interviewing your heroes and the people that made your show? Well, I'll cheat by giving you a, a kind of double answer. So one would be Barry Letts, because I, I wasn't, I was really amazed at the care he took. So if you did stuff, if you did an interview with him, I did a whole John Pertwee winter special. And he was almost like the unpaid, unsung advisor. He would phone me up, he would send me notes, he read all the text. You know, I was 18 or something and very green in a lot of ways. And I'm protected from that by not knowing how green I was. I just thought this is how things were and that I could troll off to Television Centre or, or go to wherever and do these things and type it up and it'd all be fine. Um, but I think he very sensitively would say, well, how about this? Or that's not quite right. And, and do it in a way that really, 
um, empowered you. So I look back and I think that's what made him a special person. And that's what I think when you hear actors who can sometimes get a bit too lyrical, perhaps, that's what they owe to him because he was a very enabling person. Um, and I think he did that with someone I was just a peripheral uh, you know, a fan who who he didn't need to take anything like that bother with, but he did, and that has actually a, a memory that's sort of grown as time has gone on. Gone on, and I've become obviously an old. Um, uh, I think he said an old pro it has a double <laughs> meaning. It, and I sometimes think that it's made me think how important it is to to treat everybody that you deal with. Um, in a way that is is compassionate, empathetic, and the rest of it, without losing sight of what what they're there to do, you know. So he, as I say, he he wasn't just buttering me up or making me feel good. He was trying to get me to improve what I was doing, so that presumably the text reflected uh, the Pertwee era more accurately, and and all. And I didn't make howlers that he would be unhappy with. So it was a kind of win-win. The other person was John Nathan Turner, because you know John, who was. Um, an extraordinary character in so many ways and and could be so entertaining he could be so lovely and so funny and friendly but he could also be terrifying and you would never know which john you'd get so he would phone me up or rather his secretary would phone up the payphone in the college where i lived because that's how sophisticated it was and i was usually asleep because i was a student doing plays all the time so i was usually in bed at kind of half past nine ten o'clock in the morning and someone bang on my door and say bbc's on the phone and so i'd kind of drag drag myself round to where the payphone was and it would be Sarah Lee, John's secretary, who'd be quite pissed off and now, you know, I used to think it was unreasonable and now I think, of course she was pissed off because I was, you know, keeping her waiting and she was probably thinking, this isn't high on my list of priorities, phoning through the news for Gallifrey Guardian, but she, would, she wouldn't do the actual content, she'd just be, he was very into the kind of image of being a producer, so it'd be like, oh, I've got John for you. So when I was there, he, she'd then put me through to John and then there'd be a pause and they'd be, hi, how are you? And he'd always draw out me, hi, how are you? Like kind of going off the end of a ski slope. And, um, you know, and then you'd work out whether you got good John or bad John. And if you got good John, it would be lovely conversation. He'd be really helpful. And he'd say, how about this or how about... But if you pissed him off or he was in a bad mood, you'd be... You would, well, he wouldn't mince his words. And um, I remember I was, he knew that he would get the paginations, like the plans for what we were working on for three months ahead. And he saw this article that we were going to do about fantasy males and fantasy females. And, and he said to me, he said, I'm not sure about this. He said, what, do, what exactly does it involve? And so I chatted through what it was, you know, waffling away because I hadn't started thinking about it yet. It was, it was a waffle article. And then he said, well, just keep it clean, okay? And I just thought it was so funny, the idea that somehow I was going to write, you know, kind of Jackie Collins meets, <laughs> meets Doctor Who for, for the magazine. But, you know, he, so he was a really vivid, vivid person. And I, I, part of the reason I was drawn to his story years later was what happened to him um, became almost like a metaphor for how the BBC and the industry changed. And we had certain similarities because I obviously hit, hit a cropper with Blue Peter towards the end of that time. And I felt a lot of empathy for what he went through. And in, and in fact, it, I think it killed him. And, I, and you know, it didn't kill me. But, but, you know, I think he had a 
he had a whole lot of kind of toxic things that went on and he was ter terrifically brave um, and never gave up and he had that kind of show business you know the shows go on spirit absolutely in his dna so it, it was those two men i think fantastic that's really interesting insight thank you so uh episode three what have you chosen for episode three please richard uh well for me the set piece that kicks episode three off the first sequences which involve action by havoc I mean, what thrilling words. I don't need to convince you, Toby, as we know you have form in this, in this area. But, you know, for a little boy, action but havoc. And, and actually, what action it is. I mean, I, I, edge of the seat, behind the sofa, doesn't cover it. I found the opening of this. And I still feel it again. There's the ability to trigger it again. The whole of the sequence where the, the, the end of the cliffhanger of the previous episode is that... <laughs> You know, they're being driven by Auton policemen. And then the beginning of this next episode is this whole thing in a quarry. Well, of course, it's a quarry um, where the doctor and Joe have to kind of hide from the Auton policeman. And then the brigadier turns up and rescues them. And I just it was so thrilling to me that and the famous stunt, which wasn't meant to be where um, you'll be able to tell me which of them is Stuart Fell or Alan Chance or one of those guys. It's Terry, it's Terry um, Walsh. It's Terry Walsh. Well, there you go. Terry Walsh, who was, I think, the main man, really. Um, does this incredible fall which wasn't meant to happen and then gets up and i mean that was just a brilliant brilliant bit of of, of the story so for me it's that it, it was so edge edge of the seat stuff well this could be the beginning of a beautiful friendship because i've chosen the scene in the quarry uh for, yeah! for the same yes. pretty much i yeah i couldn't choose a single bit of it because like you it to me encapsulated everything an, an extra gets killed i always that's always exciting uh a, a stunt ha a stunt happens there's a quarry the, uh, the, the gun the, the guns in the hands all of that all coming together in a bit that i found terribly exciting so we're in accord there richard episode three yeah I just say this is an example you know where a little or a lot of knowledge is a dangerous thing uh, when i rewatch doctor who now i make a kind of mental contract with myself to switch off all the stuff i know about the making of the show because otherwise for me now i find that it's so distracting and so gets in the way so as we're talking about that scene i'm remembering nick courtney talking about how he hated guns and shooting guns and was scared of them and he said you can see whenever i have to shoot fire do that i'm flinching slightly and 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 so things like that would completely ruin my enjoyment and i have to kind of not think of or katie's first trip is in fact caught on camera. I think you can see her stumble, um, and she was terrified she'd lose the job because she, you know, she'd hurt her ankle. But but all of that stuff is sort of you don't really want that getting in the way. You want to reconnect with how you felt when you were watching these shows, just as a viewer and a fan, and just loving how the whole chemistry of it comes together. Well. I've just called simply to say hello, Doctor. Let's not leave him hanging on the telephone for any longer than he needs to be. So we're going to fire up Terror of the Autons. Episode 4 in 3, 2, 1, play. Ah, da -da -dum, da -da -dum, dum -dum. So yeah, the black and white print of this I saw was taped off air from Australia. And I got my early bootlegs 
Don't arrest me. <laughs> Is there a statute of limitations? They weren't available on video. I got them from a comic shop now long closed down in Wolverhampton called The Chase. Uh, the, the, the Place. There's <laughs> a Freudian slip. It's named after a Doctor Who story. And you take in two videotapes and you get one back with episodes on. So you paid in kind. You paid in videotapes. Uh, and I got mine from a cash and carry. They were called Yashima. Uh, and they were really cheap. And uh, he much preferred it when I upgraded to Scotch when uh, it was revealed that Yashima weren't quite so good quality. But Terror of the Autons was the first Pertwee I got in black and white. Uh, it, it's... Um, yeah, again, this is something I'd imagined being sort of dark and terrifying the strangling cable and it's and it is slightly more comical isn't it than uh than uh, uh i i think i'd i'd envisaged but i think if you because because if you'd done all of this without a twinkle and a sense of humor oh brigadier that that but is but you see is he joking he's not joking the brigadier wasn't joking then uh, he played it dead straight, which Nicholas Court is very good at doing. But it means the joke. Oh, yeah, I don't know. Um, but if if it wasn't played with a twinkle, and if it wasn't slightly zany, it would be simply unsuitable for children. I mean, at the time, it was deemed uh, unsuitable for children in many ways. Oh, I like that uh, military policeman or whatever he is, his outfit. Totally forgotten about that guy. Uh he looks good. I like his leather jerkin. Um, no, it's not heat. Uh, and you can actually see the heat on that. Um, yeah, because this was... And, and I, I remember um, Robert Holmes in his brilliant essay. Was it in his essay in, in the Doctor Who file? Or was it on uh, in one of the interviews he did with Doctor Who magazine where uh, he talked about talking to Ronnie Marsh, and who was head of drama, and Ronnie Marsh saying, we had this clot... But when he was being interviewed for the script editor's job, that's right, Robert Holmes' anecdote was, you know, just just going there to sort of dot the I's and cross the T's. And this uh, Ronnie Marsh, head of drama, said, yeah, we had this idiot some years ago who wrote a story with killer daffodils and telephone wires, got questions asked, so don't do that sort of thing. And Robert Holmes, you know, he does a thing saying, I put down some of um, uh, Ronnie's horrible coffee. Uh, <laughs> um and uh, it's weird because Ronnie Marsh was one of those names people thought, oh, some sort of long dead BBC head honcho. But actually, we ended up we ended up interviewing Ronnie Marsh in our in in one of our documentaries. Ed Stradling um, got hold of him, and we went and had a chat and had a lovely time with Ronnie and his wife Judy. His wife Judy was a PA on the Abominable Snowmen. Um, uh, so amazing that those sort of names that you thought were so unreachable. Uh, yeah, ended up going, have a lovely time in their flat. I had to shoot off for a gig, so I didn't do the whole interview, but uh, I got to spend some time. And the coffee was very nice, but it was it was BBC coffee and the Holmes anecdote. Uh, now, I, I think Sergeant Benton wasn't in it last week, was he? I, I knew, I thought maybe he was just in one scene in episode three. Or was he? Was he actually not in it? I can't remember. It doesn't matter. You've seen it. Um Now they look very good in their outdoor, outdoor fatigues. Uh, much, much, that's much better than the sort of beigey, slightly more formal battle dress uh, of of 
of yesteryear. Uh, this this is a really good look. Down and dirty. Uh, but, um, yeah, you have your cake and eat it there, Doctor. I don't like the military. They blow things up. Brigadier, kindly blow this thing up. <laughs> I'm the Doctor. I don't kill people. Brigadier, kindly kill this person. <laughs> uh, it's, it, it, it's a brilliant storytelling device. It's a brilliant way of the... And, uh, and it works here because of this sort of bristling mutual respect relationship they had. I, I, you know, I don't know if we're supposed to find David Tennant's doctor um, a hypocrite in, in the Sontaran strategy. The amount of times he tells Colonel Mace off for having guns and for doing military things, you go, yeah, but you're going to let... You, you need them to do it. So you could... You could be, you could be at least a bit sort of, uh, you, 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 you know, you, 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 I think it's, it's nothing wrong with the way that D David Tennant's playing it. I think it's, it's the way that it's, it's played within the story. I don't think it, uh, I think it makes, it may be deliberate, maybe deliberate to highlight the Doctor's hypocrisy. Um, but here I think it's, I, I, I think we can live with it without judging anybody. I just think the balance is right, is, is right here. Uh, in this in this whole era, really, um, you know, I I like the moral the moral stands the Doctor makes. I like the morality of the era of of the producer who is you know um, conscious of ecology and uh, uh, and and is you know very much a, a a liberal who's against pollution who's 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 about trying to do understanding between races and things like that. And, and yet it's the era that's where, where you're working with a military force. But, you know, there's a there's a there's an undercurrent there of saying, yeah, well, you know, to, to actually stand for the things that you believe in, even if they're good and peaceful and decent, uh, you know, you might need to back those up with military force. And that, you know, that's complicated for us. But but, you know, the human race is always blowing things up for what it thinks is is a good reason. Uh, it, it just depends whether you're the blower or the blowy, <laughs> whether you like it or not. The spray of death, this was originally called. Uh, and of course, um, that's the first bit of spraying that's uh, that's happened. But what an ingenious. Now, I imagined it just to be a little sort of film, a little. It's, it's, a, it's a bit more of a thing, but it's an ingenious uh, way of dispatching a human. Cut off there. That, I mean, that's. That, I mean, that's a wonderful idea, and it's so macabre. And that idea, and I didn't know of the dying breath, and I had to sort of think about that. And then went, well, yeah, when you see people die on telly, they sort of go, huh. So of course you could get rid of the last thing that's in your lungs, and of course that dissolves it, so it takes away the evidence. What a glorious, grotesque, macabre, inventive mind Robert Holmes has. Uh, there's uh, a unit on a on a on a uh, on a knoll uh, in the studio looking at a coach on film, uh, and that's just the sort of thing we have to get used to when watching seventies telly. This wasn't unique to Doctor Who. Um, you know, it was it was uh, it was it was an aesthetic that you you soon got used to. But that's that's I I, I think I think it's the fact that the evidence is then disposed of that's a nifty effect as well uh, of the of the dissolving the dissolving plastic uh beautiful 
So just a series of corpses by daffodils, no evidence. Uh, and it's an escalation of the master's uh, plans. Is this the first time? This is the first time they meet. Yes. Uh, well, what a moment and what a pair they are. Uh, I wonder who the master's other opponents are. I wonder if there are less less influential time travellers that he goes and you know lays traps for, or, or when he just kills them first go. Goes, oh. um, and again, this I you, I can see what critics of this era sort of say. Well, you know this this cosy relationship between the two, but and 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 the the last line was changed of the episode. He was supposed to say something like the master's, you know. I'd be fighting the master until I kill him or he kills me. And it was Ronnie Marsh that said that's that's a bit too on the nose. So instead he says, uh, in fact, I'm rather looking forward to it. Which, of course, you go, well, you're looking forward to an encounter with someone whose presence is going to cause the death of many innocent people and whose aim is to destroy the world and kill everybody on it. Um, and uh, yet... These stories are, 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 you know, are made by a generation of people who, for, for whom wartime was, uh, you know, a not too distant memory, for whom war stories were were common and, and war service in, in, in the case of people like Pertwee and Barry Letts and Roger Delgado. And, and often when you read their stories, war was about a lot of boredom. And, and they yearned for action, not because they wanted to die or they wanted to kill anybody, but because it sort of got it over with and because it was... It, it broke the boredom, which sounds perverse, I'm sure, until you're in the situation where if you're going to have a... It's like waking up from a nightmare or, you know, get, pulling off the plaster. If it's going to happen, it may as well happen now. And then, you know, the sooner it happens, the sooner it's over. And if it's over and I'm still here, the sooner I know I'm not going to die today or whatever. Um, so that idea of the sort of adrenaline kick of, a, of, a, of an encounter with a mortal enemy may seem a little... Uh, cosily boy's own uh, in its approach but actually I think was more I think something you could more psychologically buy into uh, if you were from the early 1970s than perhaps uh, me as a as a as a somebody that was born in 74 so so a bit later um so, yes, Rex Farrell's finally got his conscience. But, uh, oh, Bessie looks Bessie looks great. Um, I've never quite figured out no, nobody's, why wheels look like they're going backwards when they're going forwards on telly. I'm sure somebody scientific will tell me. Uh, in fact, don't. I'm, 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 I'm happy. I'm happy to live with the mystery and I probably wouldn't understand what you said anyway. Oh, yeah. Do, so, uh... And of course, that's nice. the the brigadier's solution is to blow things up. Uh, but he's not gonna. This is this is actually tense and atmospheric. All the close-ups have they aborted in time? Uh, the stock footage arrives and goes overhead, and that was all done with the simplest of means. But that and I love the the lighting in the the coach and those close-ups were great. That was that was a good moment. That was a really effective moment. I mean, you kind of know that, yeah. The bombs aren't going to drop, but they they wrung all the the tents out that they could have done, uh, and they're sort of filming everybody from below. It's hard to 
hard to film in a coach. I like the master's grudging respect for Farrell finally developing a backbone and standing up to him. Um, although it is a slightly odd characterization with him because he was so sort of sarky at the death of McDermott and then sniveling. And then it's, uh, I mean, Michael Wish is very good, but uh, I don't think Rex Farrell's going to be high in, in anyone's sort of most memorable guest character list, which is a shame. Uh, but Michael Wisher will be praised many times in this podcast because he was terrific. Uh, and uh, his Davros is one of the show's finest ever creations and performances. Oh, and Carnival of Monsters, when we get to that. Oh, I will be like a pig in the proverbial... Uh, Morse code. Morse code with a brake light. That is nicely sort of ingenious Doctor Who-y, you know, showing kids how you can do a clever thing. And uh, uh, yeah, I like I like that. That's a very Doctor Who-y way out of trouble. Um, yeah, very good. Very good. Um So, I guess I'm pleased to say I've enjoyed this more than I expected. I, 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 I still don't think it will ever be in my, uh, you know, list of favourite stories. But uh, the military stuff's all very good. Um, I would like more Autons. But then again, perhaps that's the point. It tantalises you because if they were just all over it... And this happens with Doctor Who a lot in the 70s. I used to think, well, if they've gone to the expense of making the monster, why can't we see a lot of it? But of course, this is this is made for a generation of people for whom things were held back in drama. I remember everyone talks about the Nigel Neal play Baby, don't they? And this this one shot of actually quite an absurd-looking thing, but because it's built up to, and because it's only on for a very short amount of time, uh, everybody that watched it says, "Oh God, it was this most incredible thing!" Because their imagination did more than their visualisation because their imagination had been working for, for the majority of the screen time uh, and the visualisation for, for much less. And, uh, and actually, you know, it's a lesson in that we do want everything. We always want the money shot, but the, 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 the build-up to it is actually where the, the excitement and the, the drama lies. That was a nice shot of the, uh, of the coach in the puddle. Uh, film cameraman there has gone. Oh, well, Gov, uh, why don't I do that? And you do that. Uh, we've got a little Ford there in the road. So I'll give you some bumper. Um, I don't know why I made I made the uh, the film cameraman a, a, a Cockney stuntman, but I did. Uh, who was it? John Baker, I think. I don't know what he sounded like. So that was not a rendition of the actual John Baker. Uh, now this is uh, this is the sort of stuff I wanted, uh, uh, you know, fighting and action. Uh, uh, very good, bit of a stunt there. Pertwee leaping out, or um, and and I think um, that's twice. Poor old Farrell's been knocked out with a blow to the back of the neck slash back. Uh, which is a, what I call the Mission Impossible manoeuvre, where you hit, hit somebody between the shoulder blades to knock them out. It's too late. Yes, it's. I always think the monsters shouldn't do contractions uh, uh, or abbreviations. 
I don't know why, because saying it is too late is a bit cliched. But, oh, another unit soldier blowing up with smoke. Yeah, I loved all that stuff. Terrible bloodthirsty. Uh, oh, yes, this is cracking. Flying through the air. That's what we want. And the, oh, this was the other anecdote. This was the Richard Franklin anecdote where he's got a bit a, a bit later where he says, I had this close up where I said, that's it, sir. We've got him now. Uh, and uh, apparently the delivery was so bad that he, yeah, they, they, they didn't use the close up. Roy Scammell. Uh, lovely blonde-haired Roy Scammell, who is the fall guy. And look at that fall. That's a terrific stunt. Adds nothing to the story. Just some poor technician walking down the wrong gantry at the wrong time and hurled off and, you know, that's Barry Letts going, right, we're going to set it on Earth. We're going to make it look good. We're going to have stunts, hardware, and all those bits and bobs really... Uh, really do help but this yes so this is where and i remember watching this going on and now we're gonna see you know oh it's, hopefully they'll have learned to make it better than the monster in spearhead from space thought i uh how will how will they do it oh it's a blob of paint <laughs> it's but again it's it's making you use your imagination uh but uh, but but my my imagination had been Helped along by the Target novel, which very much got the money shot, splattered in front of the page in uh, in, in, in in pen and ink. Uh, look at that, brilliant! Uh, and this is a oh, I'd forgotten about that one as well. There's lots of is that Alan Chun's there? I think it was. Uh, loads of unit soldiers getting killed. How delightful! This is this is the stuff. Death and destruction. Um, but the fact it's being dispensed by you know grotesque carnival masks in uh, in yellow blazers uh gives it again a macabre juxtaposition uh of of the sort of the jolly and the destructive uh i mean you could have rung the master at any point doctor and gone you know that they're not they're not gonna you know the nestines aren't gonna it's 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 quite a it's almost like this is about introducing the master and and the doctor and that the auton threat uh is is sort of less important um and you know he he, he you, you know all it takes is for the doctor to go they're not going to you know they're not going to think much of you master and the master goes i think you're right doctor um but i guess it's a bit like the anti plastic in rose the st the story is more concerned with other things so you go we can dispense with that i i I'm I'm sympathetic to that, but 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 I think again because this was a story that there's has always done very well. Uh, oh, this is the we've got him now. That's it. So we've we've got him now. Apparently, I think that was originally in in close up and and uh, or there was a version of that in close up and uh, Barry Letts wasn't hugely happy with it, and Richard Franklin told told a self deprecating story about. Uh, that his delivery of that line being a bit over the top and not going down well and the other anecdote for this oh and that's a great there's a, that photo of, of roger delgado with his hands in the air was used a lot but there's uh there's the story michael wisher used to tell was that uh, because this is rex spoiler alert this is rex farrell so for the for the shot we see uh uh that reveals that it's not the master but rex farrell whose body i think gets run over by <laughs> 
by the lorry with the, by the by the coach, which is pretty bad. Um, because he'd been under the mask for quite a while, his face was completely white. So people people worried that he'd actually died. Although he he wasn't wearing the mask when he was shot. Anyway, it's a nice story. So they actually thought Michael Wisher might have been dead there, and he's dead with his eyes open, which is always I always think is a. Uh, is, is a grown-up. I don't know why I think it's some because it, it avoids the cliche. Look, Rex Farrell is definitely in the path. Oh, no. Well, his body's around there somewhere. I, I sort of think Rex Farrell might get squashed there, which is pretty grim. Um, yeah, I like a death with eyes open. It just goes against what we're used to, so seems somehow more grotesque. And I don't know. Death is part and parcel of Doctor Who stories, isn't it? It's an exciting thing, which is terrible, really, if you think about what it is we're saying. <laughs> or perhaps I'm just uh, opening a window into my psyche. Um, you, Toby, obsessed with death with all your obituaries and uh, uh, and f- Facebook posts uh, about the latest character actor, Cull from the Grim Reaper, with his uh, copy of Who's Who on television 1970, and so that he's scything through. Uh, I'm rather looking for... Oh, gosh, it ends, so it ends actually very quickly. That's a very short... Coda, uh, the story. You know, the yeah. The story, you always think of the wind down as being a bit, a bit more laboured than that. But that was very, very quick, right to the end. Um, well, look, I yeah, I still think that story has shortcomings. I think I was saying I interrupted myself. I th- I think because this has been this is a story that is sort of designated a a classic and or, or certainly was was when I was growing up and uh and one of the best poetries. I don't think it is one of the best poetries. But uh, I've certainly found plenty to accentuate the positive Oz. And, and I also think that perhaps some of my um, reticence about it is is the gap between what I expected and what it was. And actually, what it is, is, is not a compromise. It is what it means to be. So it cannot be blamed for uh, anything I might have imposed upon it before I had seen it. So in a way, perhaps perhaps any anything that... Uh, that uh, where it falls short for me is 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 actually my fault and not its, uh, and I found that I found so much to recommend in that. I would happily sit and watch that and enjoy it. I think doing this uh, has made me actually want to go back and watch it and shut up and uh, and enjoy it. And things like the 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 banter with Rossini and and little bits where I thought the scenes of people sitting around talking uh, were a were a bit much were actually much more entertaining i think if i yeah if i see it as a sort of robert holmes uh story um i might you know and the, and the things that he he, he 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 you know that became more of his trademark as he went on i think i might i might receive it better so i have to choose a thing from episode four and an overall thing so the thing from episode four that i'm going to choose is um is uh, I I I I think if not just the unit battle but the 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 look of the autons the fact that the autons are these sort of carnival masked um psychopathic alien yellow coats so uh, I'll put alien yellow coats <laughs> um and 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 you know and the fact that they're they're fighting you know recognizable soldiers in military fatigues that juxtaposition i think is very nice so episode 4 
alien yellow coats but my but but episode four has reminded me of what i think is is you know the standout thing that that covers the whole story but it certainly comes into its own in episode four which uh i think uh, and i covered it when i talked in detail i think uh about the ingenuity of the plastic over the mouth and nose and then the 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 disintegration of it with the dying breath um uh i'm gonna call that inventive death dispensing (laughs) why not well i've written it now i'm committed so but you know the the fact that we have the chair and the troll doll and the oh and even actually i've just seen it on the dvd menu that the shrinking which i know becomes a master trademark throughout but seen here for the first time but uh but particular i think is evident as 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 demonstrated by the plastic over the mouth that disappears the inventive death dispensing because it's also it shows us a sort of morbid sense of humor which uh which is sort of good fun, but also a really guilty pleasure when you when you start to think about what it is you find fun about it, and and I quite like the fact that it plays with you like that. Is that I'm I'm not sure I'm comfortable with the idea that you, you know inventive death is something that that piques my interest, um, but but it's escapist drama, and you're allowed to press certain buttons when you're doing escapism that you perhaps don't in real life, and it and it's a it's an outlet. So perhaps, yes, perhaps I'd be planning inventive death for people if I didn't get to scratch that itch watching Doctor Who. So in a way, we're all safer. Um, Let's see what Richard Marson has chosen in the future. So uh, we get to the final episode and the bonus. Um, How big a part does Doctor Who play in your life now, Richard? Um... Doctor Who for me in this year, it's quite been interesting because obviously it's been a very challenging year for everybody. For me now, it's very much a a lovely way of accessing a bit of joy when I'm feeling down or when I'm feeling, you know, I I just know there's certain things I can go to and put them on and it will make me feel a bit better, a bit happier. Um, And in a way that's, that's wonderfully uncomplicated because I don't, go away and think, think I want to read all about how it was made or I want to examine it or explore it or debate. I, I actually loathe now any sort of pulling apart of the plot because I just sort of think that's missing. It's not missing the point if that's your thing. And I've done it lots myself in the past. But Terror of the Autons as a story, for instance, does not in any way hold up to logical um, analysis and it's kind of but that's missing the point of what these were they were like you know Saturday uh, cliffhanging serials for for a family to really enjoy for 20 and that's what I want to go back to and so that's what it gives me now and that's what I try to uh, connect to the only downside to that is it means that there are chunks of the program I kind of don't very often revisit because they're not the bits that spoke to me most and then I feel like a bad fan (laughs) and that I should be you know I should be challenging myself and really trying to get something out of um uh paradise towers which is maybe there that other my my card mutual friend chris chapman who adores it and will wax lyrical about it for hours but I just can't get in there because my experience of it at the time colored my view of it so badly and you know i i was so resentful at the time that what i thought was a good script had been so badly interpreted i can't get past it 
So you see, I want to now just go to the, the pure joy bringers like Terror of the Autons. Well, I remember your review of Paradise Towers in Doctor Who magazine. Quite an, an unprecedented drubbing. Uh, <laughs> um, and and I just say quickly, shout out to John Nathan Turner, who let us print that. Wow. Because, you know, that was a shift in his, he would, I think he had such a battering himself, but actually it was very interesting that I remember the editor saying, I'll send it through, but I just don't think this is going to get past him. And he let, I think he cut a couple of tiny things, but really that was very, very, you know, good for him. Good for him. Absolutely. Well, and look, you've sort of summed up very handily there what this podcast is about, because I sometimes go into social media to escape and just to sort of revel in the thing I like. And I see so many people yelling at each other about it. I'm trying with this. Yeah. One, one of the reasons talking to people like yourself is because it's nice to hear what other people like about Doctor Who. But two, for me to go into a story with my eyes open, to like it for what it is, rather than perhaps what my younger self would have wanted it to be. And it's been really educational, actually. And in this sort of time of schisms and darkness and locked doors, it's, I've been really enjoying it. And I hope the listeners are... Two. So uh, that brings us to episode four and the bonus thing. I've chosen actually both of my things are sort of from episode four, but one is all encompassing and maybe ties in with something you've already said, but we will see that. What, so what is your thing from episode four and your bonus piece of joy about Terror of the Autons? Well, I feel like I owe this moment of episode four quite a lot, uh, personally, professionally. It's the uh, revelation of, of how the next part of the Nestine slash master plot to ruin everything for humanity is using the daffodils and they spit film over the nose and mouth. I'm not sure if I'm supposed to avoid spoilers, in which case I've spectacularly <laughs> failed. To do but anyway... Um, that moment, years later, decades later, I was working on Blue Peter and we had a, a serial called The Quest, which was essentially a ripoff of Doctor Who with other telefantasy moments in it. And the presenters would all play parts. And we were doing one called Masters of Time. And the villainess was played by Jean Marsh and Peter Purvis cropped up at some point. So there were a lot of nods and references. And the scripts came in and there were various issues with some of them. And in one episode, they all finished on a cliffhanger. One of the episodes did not have, in my view, a convincing uh, denouement. It didn't have a, 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 a cliffhanger we could shoot. And I remember talking to the director and saying, you're not going to be able to achieve this, not in the time and the money. And even if we had pots of money, it's still really complex what had been written. And we needed something that would work quite quickly. And I remembered Terror of the Autons. And I said, have a bunch of flowers delivered to this the character's dressing room door. And she takes a little sniff and then... <laughs> Out comes the plastic film over her nose. And we did the whole thing. I was amazed that no Doctor Who fans picked up on the absolutely shameless rip-off. But it got us out of a hole and it, and it was actually really quite easy to shoot and very effective. And, you know, the Blue Peter audience loved it. So I was really glad. And that totally came from Terror of the Autons. So that's my moment from that, that episode. Oh, brilliant. Well... That, that sort of ties in with one of mine. So give me your, your bonus one as well, and then I'll give you both of mine, because I think there is some sort of cross-fertilisation. So, yeah, your final... I, 
I kind of divot, Toby, about the bonus moment because I sort of thought, well, really, the bonus moment, I should use this as an eloquent um, tribute to Roger Delgado, who was fantastic and I loved him. But I kind of thought that's a bit entry level, maybe a bit obvious. You know, you take almost, he's so brilliant, you almost take for granted that, that, that's, that he is the man he was. But for me, the image of the carnival masks that go on the Autons is one of the most terrifying, you know, it's one of those things I had nightmares about. And again, was so clever of Robert Holmes that he riffed off all these things. They were giving out uh, plastic flowers in supermarkets in 1970, 71. And there were those carnival masks. They were probably the costume designer thinking, what can I do that's cheap and I can hire easily that have a connection to plastic and blah, blah. But, when I saw them, I, I, I just thought, what new horror, what fresh terror is this? And that image has stayed with me all these years and always will. I suspect if I'm unlucky enough to develop dementia, I will be babbling away in the care home about scary men in carnival masks and they won't <laughs> know what I'm talking about. But it was a very, very kind of scary image. So so that's like my they, bones. Like they play old, they've just, there's a beautiful thing on, on YouTube at the moment where they, uh, they've they showed an old ballerina, haven't they? Or an old classical musician. Uh, uh, they've, they've played some of the music and let's, let's come back to it. So they might play you the Terror of the Auton soundtrack and you'll, <laughs> <laughs> you'll point and, at the and, and What a soundtrack. If I heard Deadly Dudley's riffs and synth sounds on that, I would be um, probably quite distressed because <laughs> it, it's it, it goes so well with the kind of um, you know the macabre comic strip story. It's, it's wonderful stuff. It is. You're right. It's so easy for things like D Dudley Simpson and Roger Delgado. We, as you say, it's sort of we sort of take those for granted, but they definitely are worth saying. Well, look, this is very interesting. Having started poles apart. And I've, you know, I've never won this because the chances of me picking the same as somebody else are <laughs> infinitely small. However, my thing for episode four was, uh, I don't know if you can read that, is uh, Alien Yellow Coats, which is the big headed, ah. on the, uh, uh, which I think it's the, it's, the, it's the contrast between the gaudy jollity out front and the sleek, blank, murderous Autons beneath. Uh, and my bonus thing, which I think ties in with your with your first thing, so I don't know, is um, I, I I was making it up as I wrote it, but uh, inventive death dispensing I've put, which ties in with <laughs> particularly I think, but it's the whole it's the whole litany of them. It's from it's the fact that he gradually gets more economical as he goes along. But I think the genius of the 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 plastic thing that, that exploits our weakness. Um, kills us very, very simply, and then hides all the evidence uh, is a sort of ingenious thing that I think as a kid just makes you go, how do they think of this stuff? Um, so actually, Absolutely. I think for the first time, if I haven't won, did I get three out of the five that you did? I certainly think we can call it a score draw, which is as good as I've ever yeah. done, because I normally don't get anything. Well done, <laughs> Which well done, Toby. After such an appalling start, where I picked the one thing you didn't like, I feel like that. I feel like I grew. I went on a journey, uh, and we and we and we were finally. You totally did, yeah. <laughs> well, that's. I'm so grateful to you, and that was really interesting. Absolutely. So so much more interesting to do it where we where we sort of chat to each other. Um, I I would like you to take this opportunity to plug anything you've got to plug. Um, or, or draw attention to your internet presence or anything, uh, uh, your books or anything that you want to plug, please do. Well, I, the only thing, I mean, I'm, I'm 
in charge of a show for CBBC called Our School, which has been running now, it's going to its eighth year. And it's really interesting to be making that show in the current climate. And going back to the kind of point of finding joy wherever you can, uh, you can find it sometimes in the way that children react and cope with these situations. So it's been amazing to, and a privilege, you know, without being too lovely about it, to chart how ordinary kids in an ordinary Yorkshire school in the last year have been dealing with this very changed world and dealing with it in a way that sometimes, you know, just does bring a tear to your eye because they're so fantastic and funny and, and warm. And we're carrying on. We go back to start shooting the next season in January, 22 more episodes for CBBC. And so, you know, it may not be everybody's cup of tea, but I think it's always on iPlayer. So just an episode of our school, that's what I'm very much preoccupied with at the moment. And I think it has a lot of heart and humanity and, and is well worth 20 minutes of your time. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, we will direct them there. And uh, thank you so much for that, Richard. I'm really grateful. No, it was my pleasure. It was lovely to talk to you, Toby. And well done. So with immense gratitude to Richard and also uh, I'd like to acknowledge the fact that his was a name I read in Doctor Who magazine as a kid and then he of course done good because he went on to be a uh, producer of Blue Peter I can recommend his uh, Blue Peter diaries uh, very entertaining uh, but he, I know he was also very helpful uh, on the John Nathan Turner um, documentary that Chris Chapman did and of course Richard wrote that that very good book about John Nathan Turner so Richard's a very important contributor to Doctor Who but when I was a lad he was you know one of the the gatekeepers of the legend and and you know wrote up a lot of those interviews that I alluded to uh, during uh, my commentary there so the fact that he I think I've met him once we've emailed a couple of times about a couple of things he's been very helpful to me with my Quatermass book and if he's got anything he shares it and he shared it with me, uh, which is not always common in the world of uh, Doctor Who or TV sci-fi writing. Um, uh, I've always found him extremely kind and cooperative. So I'm really glad that he's contributed to this and this process uh, 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 is, uh, is, is given credibility by his presence on it. So thanks to Richard. Uh, thanks to you for listening. I hope you go away and dream up inventive ways to destroy the human race. If not, uh, just have fun. Uh, and I'll see you on the next one of these. But that was Terror of the Autons, which uh, I've come out of this process enjoying much more than I anticipated when I went into it. And that's the whole blooming point. Don't go changing. Ta-ta. Thank you so much for listening to Happy Times and Places with me, Toby Haydoke, and my special guest, Richard Marson, who you can follow on Twitter at RichardMarson2. The music for this podcast was specially composed by Dave Gates, and the artwork was by Dylan Patterson. Thanks to this edition's featured patrons, who are Ruben Herfindahl, Rob Leonard, Stephen Moffat, Richard Straw, Pascal Zierka, Sidney Wilson, John Williams, Rich Wiggins, Kevin West, Peter Ware, Alistair Wallace, Gary Wales, John Turner, Sidney Trote, Paul Taylor Greaves, Adam Stone, Dave Stevens, David Spencer, Richard Smith, Paul Shields, Jim Sangster, Tom Selinski, and Gavin Rymel. 
If you'd like to join those names and become a patron, please do so at patreon.com forward slash Toby Haydoke. I will also take donations at ko-fi.com forward slash Toby Haydoke if you'd just like to do the one-off thing. Anything, of course, is welcome, as is any review or positive rating you can give at any podcast outlet of your choice. It all helps, and I'm grateful for any of it. Next week, I'm going to squash your favourite Beatles because I'm taking you all on a chase. <laughs>